Digital Gonzo, episode 128, recorded Tuesday the 16th of April 2013, Bioshock 2, Sea of Dreams. This is the second of four shows dedicated to the Bioshock series. Tonight we will be covering the 2010 sequel developed by 2K Marin. In a few days' time we'll cover Minerva's Den, and then after that, Infinite. Once again, there will only be spoilers on the specific game we're covering each episode. With me tonight are Sharon Shaw of Do Try This at Home. Good evening. And Mark Ord of Gonzo Planet. Hello. And in his first guest spot as a reviewer on Gonzo, former Digital Cowboy, now co-host of Kane and Rinse, Mr. Tony Atkins. Hello. Hello. Welcome back. For the purposes of these podcasts, we're going to give the core story of Bioshock 2 its own original working title, later abandoned, Sea of Dreams, which I kind of like, thus differentiating it from the multiplayer mode known by fans as Fall of Rapture, the Protect Trials, and Minerva's Den, all of which will be discussed in the next show. Delving into the various elements of this game, you can find hugely influential aspects which were used in Bioshock Infinite, both in terms of combat and narrative. It is often criticised or dismissed by fans of the original, and the tendency for its fans is to be overly defensive. I will simply say now that there is a great deal to recommend about this, both as a sequel and as a standalone player experience. Now that that's been said, we don't have to do so again. The first game has an immense amount of ideas woven into it. The pocket of an alternate world based on our own history was introduced. Rapture was created in all its glory and horror. The concepts of big daddies, little sisters, Adam, Eve, plasmid splicers were all laid out and explored. Largely untested real-world social theories were put into practice in fiction. And major characters were laid down. A mythos was built. But after it was all over, nagging doubts were left with me. It felt immense, but cold. The suppression of human nature that came with Andrew Rhymes enforced duty to the self left most of the game feeling cold and unnatural, with tiny helpings of love and compassion dotted around the place. Your protagonist was motivated by programming, a smart bomb sent to be activated, and when you made choices, the sense of true involvement was called into question. What innocence you could find when recognised in the Little Sisters could be rescued and set free from the amassed wailing hordes of the guilty. Tenenbaum could be forgiven. So many of Rapture's citizens are dealing with such enormous amounts of guilt over betraying their country or their principles, even their families. Just listening to the dialogue of the Splices opened up windows into the ruin their life had become. I wanted to play a Bioshock story where your character could be motivated by love. It's only when you read into the multiple permutations of ending, in fact, that you realise how, if your actions lack that total compassion, that affects the final narrative outcome. This is precisely what Sea of Dreams provides, the story of a simple man asked for help this time, and beset on all sides by the rabid followers of a new manipulator. Johnny Topside, Delta, is one of the only justifiable silent protagonists. You can play him as a quiet, dutiful protector, retaining enough humanity or decency to not take revenge or steal too much power for himself. You can play him as a savage brute, taking bloody revenge on all and siphoning strength and life from others in a bid to survive at all costs. 
You can play him at various points in between, taking on shades of grey for the quartet of ethical decisions and the treatment of little sisters. But unlike many games where these paths are given to you, the impact and outcome feels cohesive and endemic to the narrative. This is a game about being a father. It can be about giving everything for your child, your focus, your support, your life. It's about the model for behaviour she sees in you and replicates. I can only think of a handful of other games that convey in quite such a powerful manner the way your child's viewpoint on the world will change with your actions. If you kill Grace and Stanley, leave Gil alive in agony and insane, and crack open all the little sisters to get to the sweet, sweet Adam inside, when you meet Eleanor, she is transformed from the righteously indignant young warrior she would be had you made the opposite choices. She takes pleasure in killing, taunts her enemies, purposefully drowns her panicked, struggling mother Sophia. You have shown her that vengeance is absolutely valid. So she tears your experience from you, stripping it away like so much precious material from the earth, because you've shown her that power is to be taken for oneself, compassion abandoned. The shades of grey in between are equally fascinating. If you save the little sisters but punish the people you meet... She develops an extreme sense of justice, the unprotected and innocent to be given their freedom, but cold retribution must be meted out on all wrongdoers. Sophia, being clearly guilty, meets her death penalty. If you harvest some, but save other little sisters, then you leave Eleanor in doubt. She cannot understand your motivations, leaving her unsettled and unfinished. In consequence, she feels that your dying at this point is abandoning her. You can actually choose here whether to live or die, and once again, this has consequences. If you choose to live, which is the selfish choice, you're teaching her that one's own life is what matters at all costs. And ironically, this makes her steal your Adam. Thus, in choosing to live, you die. If you choose to sacrifice yourself, which is the more virtuous of the two, you get a gloomy shades of grey ending as she drags you to the edge to look down at the ocean and your own reflection, allowing you to regret your actions of mixed purpose and outcome. This may be the most fascinating of all because it lacks the rosy sheen of the good ending and the frightening implications of the bad. However, the selfless compassionate ending is one of the all-time best for feeling like you're culminating a long journey, making the most forthright and noble choices possible. It's achingly bittersweet and will haunt you. At this point, you have succeeded as best you can at being a parent who can send their child out into the world to inspire, create, and improve the lives of others. Taken purely as allegory, you don't have to be a parent at all to feel like this would be a symbolic success that would make anyone die happy. This role extends to anybody with influence on others, teachers, leaders, siblings, even a close friend can be a guiding influence on somebody else's life. And it takes titles like this, Mass Effect and Walking Dead to showcase our medium of games as the one where this is possible in a meaningful way. You watch a film or TV show with an emotional ending. You read a book or comic. You watch a play. On no occasion is anything that happens a result of your actions. When simply choosing how you treat others in games can have ramifications like this and this far-reaching and this differentiating, it makes me so very happy to be alive and part of this experience at this singular stage in history. Bioshock 2 will not be celebrated for its part in that evolution of a medium. If mentioned at all, most people will say it had a better combat but not as good a story as the first. Those who played it, to whom it made an impact, 
will remember it otherwise. So I have various bullet points here, and we don't have to go anywhere near as deep into the philosophies as we did last week. In fact, we're going to focus a bit more on gameplay over the entire series in this episode, because we have the opportunity, and it showed significant improvement over the first in certain aspects, such as combat. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we'll start with the opening sequence, which, Sharon, you hadn't seen for three years because you've taken that long to finish this game. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Um, I think my, my original save file was created in 2010. Yeah, when it came out. Yeah, um, so a bit of a gap. And I, I want to say thanks, Tony, for giving this to me, because if you remember, you, you got a, a more spiffy edition and just sort of I said, here you go. So thank you. I am the giver of Bioshock. I've, I've brought it multiple times now because I'm such a fan of the game. So I've got Spiffy editions, I've got PC editions, PS3's editions. I've got them coming out everywhere. But you know, it's, it's such a cheap game to gift as well. Yeah, really, you can only about a fiver. You can pick up Bioshock too. Yeah, now. the original Bioshock. I've been doing some checking. It's about twenty quid these days. But mm. for, I think it just suddenly ramped up in interest and value because Infinite came out. But for, for some reason, people just just leave to it dropped in price very quickly if you remember back in the day well and, and a lot of that is down to one being a huge success for 2k and mm. they had you know a, rightly so i think uh, a, a lot of hope that bioshock 2 was actually going to be this absolutely massive experience for them and and sell you know millions of copies it did go on to sell millions of copies but i think they probably produced more than they uh, than they probably needed yeah. to for what it was going to be they projected five million so i'd imagine yeah. a good like one and a half to two uh, Probably yeah. not. I think it does sit around. I, I think it does sit around the best selling about two million. So two million. Pretty- anyway, so the opening sequence, um, as opposed to the uh, player-controlled one, uh, this is a, a scripted scene where you, you sit and watch, and you don't have any agency. Input. Or yeah, indeed, input. You have no, no control over it until you're ten years later. So you sit and watch it. Now, Tony, I don't know if you remember us talking about Far Cry Two. Mm-hmm years ago um, I said at the very end of it you uh, make the decision to put a gun to your head and pull the trigger that's not spoiling the game if you can get that far it's not like it's a huge surprise because you've been dying of malaria the whole way through and this actually is one of those rare games where you do you don't get you don't get the control but that scenario actually occurs and it is shocking and horrible especially with the presence of a little sister it's also a scene that tells you everything about what you need to know about the forthcoming part of the playing of the game. Yeah. Because, I mean, you're, you're first reintroduced to Rapture, obviously you're walking through it, you know this place, you've seen it before, but to see it again through a Big Daddy's eyes, um, you realise that you're actually going to be playing a Big Daddy and to be, you know, you're going to be guarding a little sister along the way and it perfectly sets up because before he, um, Delta shoots himself in the head, uh, you have to protect, well, in the, within the video he's protecting a little sister and, and it kind of sets up the combat exactly what you're going to be doing within the game. Yeah. Um, you know, before, and obviously, <laughs> you, Sophia Lamb has a, her way with you, but uh, it sets up pretty much everything about Rapture at that point. I don't remember that scene. Then she has her way with them. Oh, sorry. No, I know what you mean. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there was actually some speculation that uh, Johnny Topside was Eleanor's biological father, mm. and as he'd been brought down to Rapture years before. But 
Apparently there's a sound file on the PC version, if you get into the code, that confirms this, but another sound file that contradicts this. But they left them both out to leave it ambiguous. But I think like the main impact of that scene is the close-up on Eleanor's face. Yeah. Pull the yeah. trigger. I mean, it's, it's a hell of an impact, yeah. And it all plays in with the uh, the end sequence, specifically the good end sequence, uh, as the Big Daddy doll makes an appearance again. But I suppose this would be your happiness, the, the moment when everything seems about as right as it can get in the world for you, hardwired into the role of Big Daddy. You're protecting the little sister, and you're doing your job, and she's fine. And it's before the splices have really started preying on the little sisters. So it's uh, yeah, this was the, the good times. And then you, you slept or died through the bad times. Yeah, well, you died, um, according to the fiction, which is, yeah. I mean, I, the Vita Chambers, I mean, I, they've always been a weird um, oddity, I think, within uh, Rapture. I mean, yes, okay, DNA, it's all linked to that, um, hence why Andrew Ryan can use them. I think it's just an easy convenience of actually, um, you know, opening the, the sequence like that, bringing him back, yeah. but... I think if you put too much stock into how that system works, you'd, the whole the whole philosophy it would unravels, fall down. Yeah, because yeah. ultimately, if the soul exists, it's being yanked back into this body. If the soul doesn't exist, where is the mind of this big daddy? Such as it is, where is the connection with Eleanor? It's not just biological. Vita chambers are one of those things that you probably best off not thinking mm-hmm. too much about. This is not your daughter. Do you understand? Her name is Eleanor, and she is mine. Now, kneel, please. Remove your helmet. Now, take the pistol. Place it against your head. Fire. to say I was really impressed with the vocal performance uh, for Sophia Lamb. I, I went through quite a lot of the game thinking it was Tilda Swinton. <laughs> to me, at least, it's that level of audio performance, which is a very, very difficult thing to do. It's beautifully done because throughout the entire game, she is calm. You know, she never bursts into a, a furious diatribe like Ryan does mm, mm. everything she does, everything she says is quite calm and collected even to the very end she displays a hate for, for Delta and love being a chemical and everything's gone to hell but it's all very calm how she says it Yeah, I guess that was just her like a psychology background as a, a psychologist 
Mm. Yeah, definitely. Everything, the the way she talks, particularly um, sort of when things are going her way, she's got a very manipulative, almost weedily way of communicating that sort of she puts across her ideas, but in such a way as she expects that, of course, you're going to agree with her because, that you know, you, you couldn't possibly <laughs> disagree. Everything yeah. she's saying is so reasonable and so rational and, you know, anybody would, would go along with it. And it's only when she starts to realize that you're not going to go along with it that that starts to crack. I know you. That symbol on your hand marks you a dead man. Ten years, Subject Delta, since I watched you put a gun to your head and pull the trigger. But take heart. Out of your pain, paradise was born. I don't know how you survived, but your suffering is over now. These men will ease your burden. Please understand that like all I have done, this is an act of love. So effectively, she's committing mass emotional abuse on everyone left in Rapture. Yes. Yeah. Does it count as peer pressure when it's just one person? It's, it's that sort of... Well, if she's gathering everyone to feel this, the more people rally to her cause, the less she has to push it. It just becomes... Reality is consensus. Mm. But if you if you look at the way um, the Bioshock games examine uh, the idea of cult leaders... Each game is looking at a different type of cult and a different way of leading it, and she is just as guilty of that mm. as uh, as Ryan or as um, Comstock. They're running out of ethoses. For the, the, the fourth one, they're going to have to go for Buddhists. Space Buddhists. <laughs> There's a bewildering amount of ethoses and ideologies. <laughs> there are. Okay. Well, yeah. Let's hope that the uh, Bioshock games are released uh, over sparing enough years for them to actually really put extra thought into each one. Yeah. Rather than annual updates. Christ. Imagine annual updates on the Bioshock franchise. No. <laughs> God. But uh, actually, uh, I am wondering what comes after Infinite. <laughs> Infinite plus one? And I am your king. No, we had a king. I thought we were an autonomous collective. You're fooling yourself. We're living in a dictatorship. A self-perpetuating autocracy in which the working classes... Oh, there get... you go, bringing class into it again. That's what it's all about. If only people would... Please, feel... please, good people, I am in haste. Who lives in that castle? No one lives there. Then who is your lord? We don't have a lord. What? I told you, we're an anarcho-syndicalist commune. We take it in turns to act as a sort of executive officer for the week. Yes. But all the decisions of that officer have to be ratified at a special bi-weekly meeting. Yes, I see. By a simple majority in the case of purely internal affairs. Be quiet. But by a two-thirds majority in the case of more... Be quiet. I order you to be quiet. Order? Who does he think he is? (laughs) I'm your king. Well, I didn't vote for you. There was talk a while back that Levine wanted to make three Bioshock games, one in the ocean, one in the sky, and one underground. Um, I don't know if you'll ever do the, the underground city one, but, um, yeah. Well, I mean, that's much the same as being under the ocean anyway. It's, yeah. it's just a place out of uh, view of anybody else. I suppose you'd have less of a view, just more rock. The problem here as well is that Ken Levine, you know, much loved obviously for Bioshock, 
he still doesn't like Bioshock 2. He, he's still very critical of it, and he still doesn't really feel like it's a part of the Bioshock universe. Which, you know, I don't know, it all depends is where your senses lie with Ken Levine and then his creator of this universe and where you allow Bioshock 2 to sit within that. I, I'm perfectly fine with it. It doesn't necessarily need this auteur to be at the, the, the head of the table for it to be within that universe. But he, like I say, he's still, he's not the biggest fan of it. Sophia Lamb was engineered. Was she even mentioned once in the first game? I don't believe so. No, no. No. She was created as a person who was disavowed by Ryan to the point where there was no mention of her in Rapture in the first game. Clever. See what they did there? And uh, imprisoned in Persephone at the time. So when she came out, she managed to get her following back again. And uh, that's why you get all the Lamb paint everywhere. When you read the Rapture novel, which came after Bioshock 2, it weaves her into the story in such a cohesive way that if you take that to be the fiction, of course Sophia Lamb is part of it. And of course Bioshock 2 is part of it. I like the fact that you can either subscribe to it or not. It's not uh, essential. Yeah, I, I know it's a, it's a sticking point for some people that certain characters don't appear to be in the the first Bioshock game. And to me, it really it, it wasn't an issue. It was just, you know, okay, they weren't mentioned, but I understand the reasons why they need to be brought up. The, the problem, I mean, the, as you say, Rapture, the book, does such a terrific job of interwining all, the, interwining all these characters together that I really felt like if Ken Levine himself had actually had ideas to make Bioshock 2... Um, he really could have actually sown the seeds for, for all these characters to be within Bioshock 1, and it would have been such a brilliantly coherent story. Mm. The book's fantastic at doing that. Um, but, you know, we're left as, you know, use some of your imagination why she isn't there in one, if it's a big enough deal for you. Well, as I said, uh, if, it, if it's a simple case of this woman disappears off the grid, I want her forgotten about, which is what is implied in the book... That's the only story you had to tell yourself. I mean, you could simply just say to yourself, look, they hadn't created this character yet. <laughs> it, it happens all the time in cinema. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, the, the thing that comes up for me most uh, is the, the Alien trilogy, although that's actually better applied to the Mass Effect trilogy. In a similar way, James Cameron expanded on the universe of the original Alien. There are, of course, other parallels as well. Aliens is all about Ripley becoming a mother, and the parent Ripley trying to liberate this girl, symbolic of innocence, who's been trapped by the alien queen, who in many ways runs her own collective. And also, actually, the motivations of Ripley towards Newt are all based on her dreadful regret at losing her own child. It's more than likely that Johnny Topside had his own child back home. Yeah, you know what? Aliens and Bioshock 2, not that bad a comparison. There is, of course, also more and better action in Aliens. And the original Alien was quite cold, whereas this one, there's a lot more emotion on the surface. Yeah, you know what? I'm sticking with that one. Although, thankfully, Bioshock Infinite was not like Alien 3. Having said that, he added on to the fiction and expanded in a way that they almost seem afraid to do in this second game. It's almost like they're being too beholden to the first game and not wanting to mess with it too much. Uh, I believe that the phrase that they used was not wanting to reinvent the wheel. Recognition that the first game was pretty much perfect, aside from things people complain about. (laughs) (laughs) Aside from that, the half of the game, but yeah. (laughs) It it is... It is a perfectly acceptable um, conceit, though. I mean, it's it's 
it's not as if that hasn't happened repeatedly in history, that certain people get written out or they're just not included by the person who did the writing. And years later, all you get, history's written by the winners. It could simply have been something a lot lazier, like a pirate captain came down to Rapture, found it, ripe for the taking, and was well into collectivism. And I'm kind of glad that they wove it into the original fiction. Anyway, let's get off this one point. Let's explain collectivism in a manner that an imbecile would understand. <laughs> right, collectivism is a term used to describe the importance of a collective rather than the importance of a separate individual. A focus on the community that gives priority to, a, to groups rather than the individual. It's like a society should be a collective organism with the whole being greater than the sum of its parts so the group is more important than the individual. Ideally, the good of the many outweigh the good of the one. Sharon and I watched a 22-minute, or most of a 22-minute video of a very crusty old man explaining it. But he had such incredibly right-wing leanings that uh, he was effectively saying that Europe were a bunch of evil socialists. Yeah, he didn't really really explain it. He basically introduced it by comparing or or giving examples of collectivism that were pretty much communism, fascism and Nazism. And those were the only examples of collectivism that he gave. Was he an objectivist? <laughs> he was talking about the uh, the rights of individuals, but he, I think he was uh, talking about the importance of founding fathers of America uh, and how they had not necessarily wanted a democracy, but actually wanted a republic. Yeah, they also refused the vote to anybody female or black. I think we can establish that they were not entirely correct. That, sir, is the words of a communist. <laughs> Socialist, if you don't mind. I mean, Rand, Ayn Rand hated um, collectivism or altruism. You know, she said that I think... She had a, a Russian background, didn't she? Yeah, collectivism means the subjugation of the individual to a group. Mm. And uh, throughout history, no tyrant ever rose to power except for the claim of representing the common good. So, in effect, this second game, they were going from one extreme to the other. Oh, complete polar opposites. The one extreme was everybody out for themselves, dog eat dog, uh, the dog eaters. Only the strong will survive. Yeah. Uh, and and the, the whole thing being about uh, if you're going to be as altruistic as possible, the healthy spirit of competition. Mm-hmm. This collectivism was not about competition, but was about the group moving together as one. Now the flaw in it appears to come closer to the end, where Eleanor makes a statement that uh, Sophia would rather have everybody poor and miserable than anybody rise higher than the collective. Yeah. Also, the, her notion of the collective is ridiculously corrupted because the focus of her collectivism is in one individual, and that individual just happens to be her daughter. I mean, that's, that's the thing with the Bioshock games. Every ideology is corrupted. I think I mentioned it before in the last um, episode. It's the hypocrisy. You know, they have this glowing ideology, but towards the end of the game... They, they completely threw it out the window, yeah. you know, and become what they hate. Um, with Sophia Alarm, I think it was, um, her history is that she was at Hiroshima when the bomb mm-hmm. went off and she hated the fact that the US said it was for the greater good. But, you know, I'm probably jumping ahead, but towards the end of the game, she's literally wanting to blow up, <laughs> blow up everything for the greater good because it doesn't go to her, her, her plans. Yeah. So exactly like Andrew Ryan, who, 
the Hiroshima bombings were also the crucible of his sudden yeah. snap decision to change things. Yeah. So actually, this next question, and this was a fairly late addition to my list, uh, because I saw it on uh, described as a, a first-person shooter survival horror. Is that accurate? I've personally not thought so, no. Um, um. I th- I th- I th- it's on harder difficulties, mean, of any games, I think if you play them on harder difficulties, there is always a survival aspect. Um, and it, management, yeah. Yeah, and, and Bioshock is, is no different. I don't know about the horror part. I mean, I, I've never found the games particularly terrifying, other than um, in the first game, the Big Daddy fight, and in the second game, the, the uh, Big Sister fights. Uh, just because they, you know, they are, I guess, a element of survival, and the horror comes from you know dying and not wanting to die. But I've, I've never really seen them as horror titles, but I, I know a few people do. I've always been more horrified. It's not the traditional horror of a mutilated splicer coming at you that's bothered me. It's always been the ideas and the mm. characters' actions that have horrified me. Um, I feel more horror with, uh, I think it's Gil... Um, in the tank, mutated and crazy. I think that you know the very notion of that's quite horrible. You know, you know the scientists dissecting the emotion of love and a chemical. There's something quite cold and horrific about that. But the actual dank corridors and you no know, noises have never really disturbed me in any way. I think I could call this a survival horror purely because our version of what we call survival horror keeps changing. And is based, if we're going to be honest, on the original Resident Evil game on PlayStation yeah. One. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. A severely needs an update. B, what you just said about the the horrors that people can do to each other and inflict are ten times worse in our heads than some greebly leaping at us wielding an axe. Uh, and C, the resource management thing, which actually comes in the reason that Resident Evil you feel like it's a survival horror is because it's tactical it's because you have to work out what resources to use now in Resident Evil if you used them up if you use too many shotgun shells and bullets and woe betide you if you use too many ribbons you might not finish the game and earlier today I was in on Minerva's Den I'm doing it on hard and I ended up with $13 no med kits no Eve hypos very little ammo and a big sister breathing down my neck. <laughs> that's, I, that's bad, the resource management, that is. <laughs> well, yeah. it's more just the fact that I hadn't remembered that when you cash in the third little sister, the big sister turns up, and I'd already used all of my ammo, and I was halfway through the putting her in the um, hidey hole, and went, oh, crap. Yeah, the, the screen that... When she, the little sister, the big sister scream, and the, yeah. the screen almost shakes... Um, that is a, a worrying moment because you know you've got about 10 to 15 seconds to find a spot mm. to take on the uh, the big sister. You, you're looking at all your ammo, seeing what you've got left. Maybe <laughs> you can set up any t- yeah, turrets anything. are the way to go. Um, yeah. I say, uh, you know, certainly on hard, those those the big sister fights are incredibly yeah. hard. On easy, like anything, you know, you can take them down very quickly. But um, yeah, I can see how that could. If, if the, this is my point with the, the, most of the, the Bioshock games with the introduction of well, the, the vending machines scattered around the place never really felt like the resource management was a big deal if, if you actually went out the beaten track and, and looked everywhere you'd normally find enough money um, mm-hmm. and there was enough perks in there to change that to make sure that you, you got money all over the place um, 
but yeah, I, I, don't, <laughs> I can imagine the situation you're in where you're facing that with very little ammo. Did you win I, the fight? I just scraped yeah, through. It's great, I, I, I kept pulling up um, security droids and then using active camouflage to just disappear while she was dealing with that. I ran out of Eve. And she still had a few centimeters left, and I just had my drill, so I just lunged forward and pounded her down with the drill, and then she died with me like a nano centimeter of uh, life left, and I was panting heavily. So yeah, it's a survival horror. I was scared out of my wits. <laughs> you get the average person to start playing the first twenty minutes of the game when that spider splicer starts tearing into the bathysphere. Survival horror, right there. very near shat my pants at this point. Yes, it could be called a survival horror, and the survival horror that redefines, not to a huge extent, but at around about the same time as Dead Space as well. Which actually follows more of a Resident Evil 1. Or 4. Either way, Resident Evil 6 is not scary. I mean, neither game uh, is a... They're both rated... Is the first one rated 15? The second one rated 18? Let me double check. Both 18s. Both 18s. They're both rated 18, so I'm not going to sit down at, you know, a, I'll say a teenager, but they've seen everything before, but I'm not going to sit down at, a, you know, a person that doesn't like um, horror of any kind or doesn't you like violence. Here, don't you? No, I mean, she's fine. She's a big fan of both games because I've right. played them multiple times, obviously, in front of her because they're two of my all-time favourites. So yeah. she's actually perfectly okay with it. A yeah. long time otherwise, then. But they are, they are, they are rather violent. The second one in particular is, it seems they are more violent than the first. Mm. Possibly because of the brutality of the combat that you get into. Well, you're playing the big daddy, so you know, I mean, it, it, for me in particular, I love playing with the big drill uh, yeah. <laughs> with the big daddy. Yeah, that sounds fun. But um, power tool obsession coming through there. No, but yeah, but it's actually an overpowered weapon. There's a couple of perks that you can add to it. Uh, one being freeze, and one that does uh, double damage. And in fact, um, where you uh, if it actually allows you not to have any other weapons other than the drill itself, but it does double yeah, damage. Specialist. Yeah, and it's and it's lethal. Uh, in fact, that's probably why I never end up running out of ammo to take on the uh, the big sisters because <laughs> at that point I've I've stocked up on everything. But uh, the big the, the drill is is great. But then that plays into the story itself because you are a big daddy. You should be all powerful, yeah. unlike the first game where you are just a you know a human being. Um, you know that doesn't actually make that sense how you can survive the the entire way through the, the first Rapture game. Other than you know, on your wits of, of using plasmids all the time. Mm. Also, this ties in with the uh, fighter chambers. The first game, as I said last week, uh, it, I turned them off for the second game and played it on normal, and was very, very cautious and scared, and very, very f- focused on resource management. So, yeah, more of a survival horror. The second game on hard, but with fighter chambers, 
I feel like I've, uh, especially at the beginning of the game, I was dying all the time and, and running out of stuff. So I think it was, it felt like a different dynamic. And eventually I, I almost snapped and switched it back to Vida Chambers off back on normal because it seemed actually harder on hard. It's funny that. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, if you put it on easy, of course it's not a survival horror. There's no issue of survival because you, you will. And there's no issue of horror because you're invincible. I would say, speaking as somebody who's, who has played it through entirely on easy, um, it might not have that element of um, survival horror in a gameplay sense, but in a narrative sense, it still has that tone sufficiently to contribute to how the world is being communicated. This was something that occurred to me, actually. I was doing some research on learning styles a little while ago and looking at audio learning, visual learning, and kinesthetic or uh, tactile learning. And it occurred to me today that a video game is one of the only mediums that can reliably use all three forms of, of being able to communicate to somebody. Mm. If you if you learn in an, an audio way and you're better with verbal stuff, somebody gives you a book, you read the book, you absorb what's in the book and you, you can internalise that world very easily. If you're a visual person, then if you've got a film and you can absorb it by what's being said and what you can see, then you can absorb that and, and create that world for yourself. But if you happen to take things in 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 a tactile way if you learn by doing a book or a film just isn't going to get it across in the same way that a video game does and even if you play these games on easy you're still participating in violent acts which communicate to you a violent world you're still getting involved in actually having to go and seek things out which gives you the the feeling of this place being incredibly secretive and all these things being hidden and it gives a third dimension to the storytelling that you you just can't do with any other way of doing it and i have to say that that this whole series mass effect was previously my my favorite game series of all time Bioshock has now knocked that off the top spot. This surprised me. Yeah, I, I've been this this re, the uh, playing of Bioshock two, um, watching the the playthrough of Infinite, and you know the the scenes from from one. There's so much and and so many dimensions to this that I just didn't get from Mass Effect in in entirety, and that Mass Effect three had actually started to put me off. But I, I just I want to know so much more about Rapture, the way that it's all been put across, and I think that that three dimensional communication everything that's a part of it, the visuals, the graphics, the audio, the music, and the motions of what you're doing, regardless of how difficult it is to do those things, the motions are the same. And it's a very, very effective way of, of getting the, the feel of the world across. Mm-hmm. I understand I'm not in any way attempting to diminish people's easy playthroughs. I know oh, no, 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 no. several I, people I, who play yeah, it on easy. No, I understand that completely. No, ultimately, I don't... I, the way I see it is... Um, if I'm, uh, I, I like the fact that most games will give you the option to change up mid-game now. Yeah, that's um, essential. Yeah, because yeah. If, if I'm playing something and I really do feel like it's boring me and I need something more, then I can switch up to normal and brilliant. But if not, I would rather have the option to play it on easy than keep banging my head against the same brick walls over and over again and feel like I'm missing things and I want to get on with the story and I can't because there is something here that's pro- you know proving to be too tough an obstacle for me to overcome. It's a tough balancing act for game designers to follow and to give people effectively that pole that people who walk along tight ropes 
have to, for themselves to actually balance it themselves mm-hmm. and, and allow them that a level of control really genuinely opens up games. Time's a, a commodity that a lot of people can't afford to waste mm. on the frustrating sections of the game. Remember, uh, the, the, the classic one for me was the much venerated Call of Duty 4 Modern Warfare, which I was told <laughs> by certain people. No, no, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you must play this on veteran. Well, no, 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 no it, you weren't wrong. It is incredible, but I was also just being grenaded to hell. I thought, oh, I gotta start just doing this on normal. This is driving me nuts. Had to restart the entire game. I'd, I'd, I'd just like to point out, by the way, I still got shitted up when I heard that big sister scream. Mm-hmm. Just because I knew I wasn't guaranteed to die. Yeah. Easy does not necessarily mean cakewalk. Here's a lovely bit of design talk from Colin Fix, senior character designer on Bioshock 2, talking about the development of the big sisters. Uh, so, like, the big sister, like, the first day, he sits me down, he starts talking about this character that, that he was thinking of as, like, a wounded bird or, like, a, you know, a bird with broken wings and or possibly uh, uh, relating to her, her to a, as a butterfly and, and being, like, welded together and broken and, and all these things. I'm like, good Lord, what, like, it's a big daddy, but it's a girl, it's a girl this time, and she's a teenage girl, and she's, and I go, oh, my God. So then I go back to my desk, and, like, I have all this information, so I just had to sit down and start sketching these ideas out. You know, again, kind of trying to use elements from the first big daddies, like like the, the cage and the bouncer. I was thinking that the little sisters are, were kind of a keyhole shape, and the big daddies were giant squares. It was kind of a challenge of conveying this... Uh, kind of tortured soul, like a sad person who's experienced loss. She's come back to Rapture and, you know, maybe she's gathering things that, that were important to her. Um, when she was a little kid, it kind of had this eclectic, weird look to her. I think Jordan was kind of queuing in on this one. He liked something about the look of it kind of looked like she could uh, be kind of dangerous or, or be able to hurt you, whether it's, uh, you know, physical abuse, sexual abuse, verbal abuse, uh, just it's someone who's experienced something horrible in their life and is trying to deal with it. So then I was working on this. It was starting to come together for me. It, she felt kind of awkward and, and uh, kind of tortured. But then I was talking to Jeff Weir, our uh, animation supervisor, about it. He kind of looked at it and he said, you know, I think it's looking cool, but something about it just isn't threatening. With that in mind, I worked out this sketch, which kind of felt more threatening and, and creepy. I, I, I took the the bouncer character and kind of deconstructed the bouncer and, and thought about like all the little elements on him. How could I shift them and rearrange them and, and uh, make it into this new character? So like the, the cage that's on the front of him over his helmet, I took it and I moved it to her back and I kind of had it offset. And I kind of had this idea where it was kind of like, like her spine. And so it's like she's sort of like this twisted, sad, broken character. The idea that she's a little girl trying to wear this Big Daddy armor, that she would need some sort of help. Jeff came up with the idea of having uh, the little bows on her. You're conveying the idea of uh, female, little girl. Uh, the idea for the cage was that the, the sister would start kidnapping little girls and turn them in, into little sisters. So the cage was a place that she could put them, and it'd be kind of a, a safe house um, or like a womb sort of thing. So the little sisters would be on the back and, and they would do little kid drawings on her tank. So I put little kid drawings on it and, and they would decorate her with bows and get, you know, kind of like, like a little girl would do to her friend. This 
Let's move on to Big Sisters now, actually. We can expand on that. These were the new major characters and antagonists for the game. Originally, it was going to be simply one Big Sister who hounded you the whole way through the game. Uh, the reason they decided against this was that they didn't want one character that you absolutely couldn't kill... Uh, because you knew that whenever you fought them that they would be uh, unkillable and would just run away and then come mm. back again. And there's actually an opening section where you fight um, a big sister for the first time, you don't kill her. So yeah. you do a lot of damage and then she runs away as a fight. And it, and it is, um, you know, less... Uh, oh, what's the word? Impact? <laughs> less, yeah, less impact from less satisfying. Um, but you said there, at one point you do feel like, you know, that she is, uh, a character that's gonna appear and go, and the first time you do actually kill her, I was actually surprised. I was like, oh, yeah. so that's not the case. No, um, there's, there's multiple big sisters. But mm-hmm. here's the thing. The difference between big sisters and big daddies is pretty huge from the point of view of how we interact with them. We see her, especially at the beginning, diving about the place like some sort of submersible ninja and graceful and fascinating looking. Mm -hmm. But when you meet her, she tries to kill you. And then every subsequent time you meet another one, she tries to kill you and you have no recourse but to kill her brutally. You never see the big sister doing just big sister things in a way that won't make her immediately attack you. So you can never really start to care about her all you ever do is fear her or are annoyed by her at times no you know what i know exactly what it is the big sister doesn't mean anything to anybody big daddies mean the world to the little sisters songbird means a great deal to elizabeth in fact that relationship is quite complicated because she's a woman and so she can recognize him as both her captor and her only friend big sisters I mean what they snatched little girls away you have to think hard about who they are. There's a disconnect there. You don't get to see them performing some kind of redeeming act and mattering to somebody. I have to admit, though, I did feel some connection with them. Mm-hmm. The more I learned about sort of where they'd come from and, and the fact that they were an evolution of the Little Sisters. Yeah. It did um, feel wrong that we were effectively killing Little Sisters. Yeah, but, but at the same that, time they came at me with a great big pointy thing. <laughs> well, so exactly. It's like, <laughs> it's like you know, fight back or die. But um, the the fact that there were multiple ones as well, I think, is is a part of that. If it had been just one, mm. um, then there's less of a feeling that um, that the little sisters ultimately, if they're not freed, are going to end up effectively trapped. Because that's that's the thing that the um, adaptation of the big daddy armor. Um, the, the overwhelming feeling that I got from the big daddies in the in the first game was this idea that they ha- they are in a prison that they carry around with them. Yeah. They can never really, they, you know, they can never escape these suits. This is the the epitome of their uh, their trammeling, their restraint. The bouncer and, literally has a cage around his face. Yeah, exactly. And and the idea that if the little sisters hadn't been um, you know, the, the ones that you freed in the first game, they have escaped this fate. They haven't grown up to find themselves little prisons of their own. Mm-hmm. She has little bows on her cage and her armour because the little sisters have been decorating her. She has little drawings on her armour because, uh, as you said, Sharon, that uh, victims of abuse create... Uh, what did you say? Um, it, if you... If, Somebody is in an abusive situation long enough and they have no uh, no healing or, you know, nothing to get them away from that. They start 
to see um, a, a form of protection within that abuse. Mm. And that's, uh, and obviously if, if they've existed in that abusive situation for long enough, mm. then they start to perpetrate that on, on other people. And the fact that they are bringing in more little girls to become little sisters, that again, to me, uh, emphasized the, the tragic nature of, of who they are and what they've ended up becoming. That the, the horrible, horrific things that were done to them, they've started to pass on and bring in other girls to, to have yeah. that done to what, them. What would be interesting, I don't know if this has been answered anywhere, is that through the end of the bar, near the end of Bioshock 2, we work out and we see the world what the little sisters inhabit in their own minds. Yeah. Um, which is just a, a stunning scene. But we don't actually really know what the, the, the big sisters um, see. I mean, do they now see the world as it truly is, how Rapture truly is? I mean, they, they have, they do go topside and they do get more little girls to come down and interrupt them itself so you know do, do have they you know, i mean a lot of this is to do with the amount of adam in their body but have they completely abandoned everything that that, that that we know the little sisters inherit now i would imagine they've twisted it they mm. they must see people trying to take the little sisters as far more demonic which creates a hyper aggression in them mm. The way in that scene that you're talking about, Tony, where the uh, the little sister goes round and you pick, you're picking up all of the the bits of the big sister armor. Um, I don't know if you remember, but the first part of the suit, she sees it as a very glamorous evening dress. Yes, yeah. And it, I I imagined that the the big sisters, that's how they see themselves. They see, you know, that that these suits are, are elegant, um, and that what they're doing is extremely, um, you know, they again amping up the the positive image of how they see themselves so that they don't have to look mm. at their own reality. Hyper fantasy. Yeah. Mm, yeah. <laughs> they yeah. may even basically see themselves as, well, in fact, very likely, God-like, as yeah. being, yeah, god goddess-like uh, beings de- destroying these demons and parasites. Mm. And, and bringing these little girls into this glamorous and, um, and uh, benevolent lifestyle. Yeah, Mr. Trick there. The design of the actual costume itself, if you look very carefully, especially on the stills, the arms and the legs are bound in 1940s polio calipers. It is a child that's not got a proper musculature that it's able to use, that it's it's almost lopsided and and slightly deformed. But the incredible grace and and abilities with which she's, she's able to move defy this twisted armor around her. She's She's like, uh, I think if, if Big Daddies were compared to whales, she's a spider. I would say a dolphin more than a Yeah, because yeah, yeah, yeah. the high squirrel, yeah. I don't know about you, I've never really been that scared by a dolphin. But yeah. <laughs> but she, uh, the way I she agree, she's the way scary she, uh, is, is that agile. And she's at, yeah, she's like a super badass Spider-Man uh, superhero. But I mean, this, this is where you, I mean, a, a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, is is by shot two as as well thought out as one and, and, and certainly in its, its storytelling point but yeah i, I believe it is because i i think they could have quite easily have just i mean in two you do see there is an evolution of uh, the big daddies there's you know three or four different models and they become more and more powerful um towards the end of the game they, they have rockets on their back um and yeah they are vicious but nothing compares them to a big sister and i think you know in, in a weaker game they could have just stuck with the big the big daddy scenario and, and not gone with something slightly outside of the, you know thinking outside the box yeah. and the big sister is scary and it's a, a better you know it's a more interesting design and from a, an approachable point I mean when you were in, in the first game when you were approaching a big daddy you you had to instigate the fight um, 
as we've talked today, you don't instigate the fight with the big sister other than putting the little sister into the hidey hole and then realizing, oh God, this is the time. Um, and you don't have the time to prep. I always think, remember in the first game thinking, okay, I've got a big fight, go and stock up on the multiples of things that I need. And you never have that situation. You just think, oh God, what, what do I have at this point? Can I lay traps? I'll just back myself in this corner yeah. <laughs> with a drill. It's I right just, that you should feel outmatched, though. It's in terms of, if you're going to put it in military ordnance, you're a lumbering tank. Yeah. And she's an Apache gunship. She, she's, she should run, literally run rings around you. Although you are quite lithe, you know, compared to the other yeah, big bodies, you're yeah. very agile. I think if, if, if you'd been lumbering along that slowly, the whole game would have been interminable. It's, it's the will of mind that, that wins you through those battles. You can see if there's somebody, if, you know, if he didn't have, uh, the will to, to find Eleanor, then, you know, quite possibly he probably just wouldn't win that fight. But, you know, as the player, as, as the, um, as the, within the game, you just, you feel like you have to win those things and, you know, and you do so. Yeah. Uh, but as I said uh, last week that uh, the final section of the first game seems to have uh, been something a lot of people were looking forward to if they wanted to actually be in the boots of a big daddy. And this is that section done right, writ mm-hmm. large, over the entire game. Okay, so Rapture Reclaimed, what 10 more years has done to the city under the sea? Barnacles. <laughs> Lots of them. This next fellow is Hogarth de la Plante, lead environment artist on Bioshock 2. This is really the first space in the game that you actually can drive your character around in. This is the Adonis Luxury Resort. So you open up the game in, in this kind of luxury hotel and spa, but this place has been just utterly destroyed and taken over by the ocean. So, you know, there's a lot of flooding that's happened in here. The architecture of Rapture and everything is kind of crumbly and wrinkly looking on the architectural, on architectural level, but then you have these really beautiful, colorful life forms that have taken over in here. You're in like a uh, ecological environment that's been evolving and is sort of hyper evolving because of the presence of Adam and this sort of genetic fast forward. You can see some of it outside the windows up here as well. You know these these bright glowing kelp that has these you know kind of light bulby pods on it and stuff like that. So you're going to see you know weird life forms and it's sort of alien feeling and uh, very colorful. A lot of what was colorful from the original Bioshock was the kind of Las Vegasy neon and stuff like that. In Bioshock 2, we wanted a lot of the color to come from these this life that's kind of like creeping in, you know, creeping in through the windows and in, in some environments that you visited that you visit in Bioshock 2 that used to be completely submerged that are now emptied out of water. You get to actually see the effects of that. So Rapture, in that respect, it's sort of been broken down and then built back up in this organic way. At last, a signal. You, who are bringing this dead city to life, listen. My name, it is Tannenbaum. I know who you are. One level that I think turned out really well and was an amazing uh, collaboration like I've been talking about between art and design is the Ryan Amusements level. Just to give people an idea of how just how complicated these levels are when we're finished with them and how many objects are in them, we, we want to people to understand the things about Rapture as a location and who Andrew Ryan was and what the ideology was that that helped build Rapture, uh, who had not played Bioshock. But at the same time, we don't want to bore people who have played Bioshock. So we were like, oh, how are we going to do that? We came up with this idea that we were going to make it a like a theme park. There are kids being born in Rapture, and they know that their parents have come from the surface world, and Ryan wants to keep Rapture a secret and wants to, to really, you know, uh, 
really pile his views on top of any any new ki new children that are being born in Rapture. These displays that we wanted to set up that kind of show what, how Rapture was physically constructed with divers and everything building it. So, um, so Devin and Tynan sketched all this stuff out. Um, then we started thinking about the actual uh, lessons. As you play through the level, you get to see the journey to the surface ride, and you get to see these little lessons that are taught about uh, about the surface world and, and how evil it supposedly is in Andrew Ryan's mind. So we started thinking about how you know how these characters were going to get built. This is this is what it looks like. You know, after we decorate the thing out, we had. Uh, you know, our team in Shanghai built these really creepy animatronic people models um, that uh, you can actually, like, use telekinesis to, like, tear off their heads and arms and stuff and use them as weapons. Uh, this is one of my personal favorite meshes in the Ryan Amusements level, the uh, plaster paper mache dog. On the surface, the farmer tills the soil, trading the strength of his arm for a hole. So, He's created this this propaganda theme park that teaches kids how terrifying the surface world is. Because obviously they've, they've heard about it, and maybe they're curious about it, but you never want to go there because the surface world is terrifying. Hello there. My name is Andrew Ryan. I built the city of Rapture for children just like you. The, the reason I make games, I think I just, I like the idea of exploring and moving through 3D space. Um, just on a very fundamental level. I, I don't know what it is about that for me that, that I like. Uh, I fly airplanes also. I think there's something related to, to, for me to flying and moving through 3D space and making and working on 3D spaces that I want people to be able to explore. So um, for, for me, working in the environment department on a game like Bioshock, where the environment not only tells these intricate stories and is a textural and, and interestingly lit environment, uh, I, I guess, well, those things help draw you through the space and make you want to be able to climb around in there and dig through every little nook and cranny. And there's something about moving through that 3D space that I'm really interested in, and I want my audience to be interested in that, too. So hopefully we did a good job, and, and you know, people want to climb around in rapture. All of the color in this game comes from the sea encroaching and reclaiming rapture. Yeah, it's quite evident when you're outside walking the ocean floor mm. and you have the, the, the plant and like all over just everywhere and bright color, uh, colored coral it's, mm. yeah yeah it's great that seemed to be a very natural environment for the Big Daddy as well. I don't know whether that's a, a, a side effect of being in that suit mm. um, and that being an essential part of you. But the, the uh, bits of the game where I had to go outside and walk through the ocean. I mean, I, I love being underwater anyway, but that felt right. That walking through the, the mm. quietness of the ocean and having all of that beautiful glowing um, sea life around you going back into rapture and that that sort of the the rush when the airlock sorry the um uh, the water whatever you call it's it it's actually called an airlock you're right oh yeah. it's called an airlock okay <laughs> when when you're going into the the uh, airlock and you have that rush where you you lose your the the silence that the water provides you that felt discomforting to me it was like going into an environment that i didn't really be, want to be in and did not feel like my natural home like leaving the room yeah, yeah. There's actually some uh, 
really subtle stuff that you you have to really kind of listen out for and, and know next time you play you'll, you'll see it but um when you're outside you, you can actually hear um, where you need to go by this tiny little tinkle you just hear like you know like little chime bells going off um and the closer you get to the the airlock you actually realize it's the the, the switch that you need to press you get closer and closer and it gets louder and louder and not many people pick it up but you can hear it from a fair distance away and it's just like this little you know this way just ingratiates the player to come this way and it's it's you know fantastically subtle but um i mean it's i i actually think that the visual storytelling of, of rapture is you know or visual terror of the bioshock series is the best there is out there reading rapture book it, it it paints a vivid picture of what rapture looked like in its prime um you know although you you, you you're using your mind to visualize it you having played the the games you can quite easily do so mm. the first one it's you know the fall you know the rapture is at that point really only just falling it's been a i think it's a, it's been a, like a year or so isn't it yes. but you know it's the decay has been happening for a, for a little while the plasmids and time you get to um bioshot 2 it's 10 years of 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 you know, missed neglect because obviously you know nobody's really fixing that stuff although you do yeah, at the very start you do see a big daddy um attaching rivets yeah yeah fixing the outside so there's this attempt to keep rapture alive but as much as many of the characters inside rapture rapture itself is dying um you know this this amazing place this this great idea um it itself is is falling apart there's there's water flowing from ceilings and rivets and seams and flooded corridors there's whole sections which are um you know impenetrable i mean that's how they 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 get around the point from you uh, having to visit other areas that would have been there in the first game because they've just been chambers have been flooded off and all broken down and you can't actually access them and some absolutely beautiful visual storytelling of how rapture is as a, a liver living being now it's the sadness of the sheer mm. loss of potential mm. It even sadder that the only real hope that you can have is to escape the place. Yeah. It does very much emphasise, though, the idea that Ryan created this uh, this world in the hope that it would become something great. But because he created a closed system, yeah. the only thing it can do is degrade. In terms of visual storytelling, the way, the way it's uh, set up is that when you go into a new room, and this is across all of the games... Uh, what is around you and what you can see should tell you what has happened there and uh, the audio logs are part and parcel of that. I think this was probably taken to its extreme in Bioshock Infinite uh, with the fact that they... I mean, all of the Bioshock games have got food and bits and cream bars scattered around the place, but uh, there's coins in Bioshock uh, Infinite in place of dollars and they're everywhere. And I found myself rooting through every crevice and eating sandwiches out of dead man's pockets, just this compulsion to loot all the time. Every few seconds, you're constantly looting. And it made me wonder, uh, my recent playthroughs, if I was just playing this and really, you know, you know, stuck it on easy and wasn't all that worried about energy and things, would I really be getting anywhere near as much out of it? Because I wouldn't be really looking at anything. Yeah, but I mean, even, even on hard, I mean... Once you've eaten a cream cake, and, and once you've opened a trash can, like there's nine times out of ten, there's nothing of any importance in any of the things you're looting. Mm. Uh, the audio diaries are the things of importance. So even um, in the case of bo- both bar shock, well, all bar shocks. I mean, if you drink alcohol, you you will become, you know, temporarily uh, dizzy and drunk. Yeah. Um, and in the case of actually, it might be. In, once again, it's been <laughs> confused of what it does to um, your Eve or. 
Um, I think uh, alcohol raises your E but lowers your yeah, uh, energy unless you have as well. uh, the booze hound perk. So all I found myself was stay away from alcohol and like everything else. And, and, and you learn like, a few things playing. Yeah, but exactly. But I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I don't smoke, just, kids. Just smacking X, like just pick everything up. Like everything is going to be. Yeah, I'm either. It's, you know, if I can, if 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 I need health, my health will go up. If I avoid alcohol, then that will solve that problem. But everything Surrounded else. Surrounded by scrunching sounds. There's all this. Yeah, just <laughs> like you just, just literally, just like a pack man eating everything in front of you because you know that's what. So I think it's ridiculous. In Bioshock Infinite, I ate an entire wheel of cheese. Yeah. And I just carried on walking down the seat. I'd have to sit down. I'd have to have a nap after that in real life. <laughs> and yet Booker, just a normal man, goes oh. And then yeah. goes, what else can I eat? That gave me about an eighth of my energy bar back. But that, that's the same across all three games, and it's really the audio diaries that you're going into these extra areas, or you know, the the if you're playing on the harder difficulties, ammo's a, a really sought after thing. And if you're playing in certainly Infinite's 1999 mode, then you know you, you you definitely need to be searching everything possible to to gain everything because you can't just go out and buy it. But you know, in that case, yeah, I, I think that's a, a broken aspect of all those games because. But that's just game logic. <laughs> the irony is, on the hard difficulty settings, uh, a cream bar gives you like a like three percent of your energy bar goes up. So small you can barely see it move, and yet the average shotgun blast will take off a third of your energy bar. So you'd have to eat sixty of them just to just to that's, make that any. That sounds kind of real life to me. <laughs> How many cream cakes? Big, if you eat sixty cream cakes, and this shoots, blast. you just fall over and That's die. Not I was just going to say, if you eat sixty cream, cream cakes, they wouldn't need to shoot. You just wait for the cholesterol to take you down. Querying the Vita Chamber thing. What about the compulsive eating? If you got sixty cream cakes, then you're going to be of more heavier build. Thus, <laughs> shotgun blast will take more damage to go through. Right? Now we know how the big right. daddy's got yeah. big. But yeah. but yeah, it's it, you kind of it's one sort of things you have to sort of tune out as being ludicrous if you really think about it. I mean, the looting thing actually stems from games like the the Elder Scrolls series, where you uh, if you're not in a town where you're going to get into trouble for, if you go through a, a dungeon, you're going to pretty much loot as much as you can. Yeah, but at least but, you got overcumbered there. I was going to say, yeah in, yeah, in Bioshock, imagine if eating your cream cakes or just picking up bits and bobs <laughs> would make you over encumbered. There's so much faff in the run around in a games. circle for ten minutes to, to burn it off. Got, or, try and just, sort out a keypad lock. The fingers you have used to dial are too fat. fat. <laughs> just ends up you end up just going through your inventory over and over again and throwing down sheets of iron armor and it's like oh you suddenly explode and all this armor goes everywhere and then you walk off calmly just a few uh, pounds lighter but there's none of that in bioshock because it would Mm. slow you down and there's enough of your game is spent hacking and examining absolutely everything and eating every cream cake you find to to be messing around with uh, inventories but if you uh, look at the um, original designs for the game, it was going to be very heavily RPG based. They were going to, in the first Bioshock one. They were you were going to have to record, have fulfilled certain criteria to do anything to hack to use certain guns. You, you, there was no situation to just pick it up and you can use it. You'd have to learn how to do absolutely everything, and it was restrictive. I like the fact that they didn't go that way then, and that's that's speaking as someone who normally loves RPGs with a. Yeah. passion that is virtually on I don't know if, if you could fill up bars that, that, that would be awesome yeah but seriously the, the environments in these games you need your mental capacity free to be able to concentrate on what's going on around you if you had to be 
all the time worrying about yourself and your stats and what you could do and what you couldn't do, I think you would miss half of the incredibly important stuff about the game. Also, again, it breaks the reality. If some spider splice is leaping at you with his hooks flying, and you're like, well, I've got this double-barreled shotgun, but it's not really safe to use yet. And again, that was a hang-up from System Shock. System Shock 2 is about um, weapon degradation, topping up your armour... There's so few games with weapon degradation or, or uh, locking up. Uh, Far Cry 2 was one of the few that, that did that on consoles and uh, stalkers consoles. So I've been told off by that from by Matt for saying consoles. <laughs> yeah. Stalker Shadow of Chernobyl. Yeah, yeah, excellent game. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so how has the combat changed over all? I say all three games, but we can include Minerva for the subtle differences. I do not like the rivet gun. I do not like it, Sam, I am. No, I do not. Why not? I don't know. There's just something it's just a about it. I know, I know, and that's why it's irrational. If you upgrade it, like they it. go on fire. There's just something feels inherently useless about it. Okay. Trap rivets are fantastic. Yeah, then, yeah, then it turns oh, into apart trap from the rivets. trap rivets. Apart from the trap <laughs> rivets, yes, they are, they are good. I never, ever aim with anything other than a spear gun. There's no point. As in, like, right-click on the uh, right stick. Spear gun in the face, flinging them back against the wall. Brilliant. That was a welcome addition to Bioshock 2. I do like being able to I pin don't. them to walls. That, that was Yeah. Good. Although, it, on hard, they just run around with spears in them. It's unbelievable. It's like I, I fired a, a harpoon into your chest, and it's sticking out of there. I think the... On easy, the brute splicers do that, but most of them, it, if you hit them with one spear, they, they die. Let's go back to my original question. How has it changed <laughs> over all three games? Tony? Um, the, the combat in one, I always felt like one was had, had some real good ideas when it comes to combat. Obviously, the plasmids were fantastic. We hadn't really done anything that you could say, yeah, we've seen magic-type games which dealt with... Um, plasmid elements but you know them shooting out your hands in the way they did and then using one your other hand for a weapon was amazing fun and you know i liked all the powers but i rarely used any of the powers i, I kind of i i liked um lightning and i kind of stuck with lightning and then i you know liked a, a specific gun and then stuck with a specific gun certainly towards the end of Bioshock one i i i felt the combat wasn't good enough for the challenge of the combat was too intense for what the game could actually handle. Yeah. And I actually found something on the higher difficulties, the last third or even the last half of Bioshock 1 to be actually quite frustrating in its combat. You can get around that by over overpowering the wrench. Um, you can just basically one-hit kill everybody in the game if you overpower the wrench, which, you know... Overpowered kind of, wrenches are Foo Fighters cover band. Yeah, it's kind of, <laughs> kind of cheating in that way. So, I mean, it, what they did with, with Bioshock 2... If, if, instantaneously the, the big difference is um, in Bioshock 1 you could either use plasmids or use co- uh, use weapons in Bioshock 2 they allowed you to do uh, both of them simultaneously so in a sense dual wield uh, which is a, a big improvement you didn't have to constantly bring up one hand drop another and then do it again yeah. there'd be a, a pause between them also but they usually int- dual wielding in games comes with some sort of penalty but this one actually it, it only gave you benefits um, they introduce a, a number of new plasmids. Um, they to, all the combat itself feels a lot more tighter. It feels more of a, a modern day um, shooting type experience. But then again, it still also has those RPG elements mm. to it, which I think a lot of people could label to towards the first game. It felt quite RPG esque in its combat. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I know you know we will talk about the protector trials, but 
did you mess around with, with the plasmid combos at all within the main game? Uh, certainly, on my uh, my recent playthroughs, I was I was definitely uh, trying different things. But you can't really afford to buy all the plasmids or equip all the plasmids. So I was sticking to different plasmids each game. So for the first one, I went for mostly uh, electrical. Second one, I was going for fire a lot more. And on Minerva, I've gone for ice. And um, uh, but but the one thing I haven't used enough of are things like decoy and mm-hmm. um, the cyclone traps. That's phenomenal, especially if you upgrade it and then you can put electricity or fire yeah. mixed with the cyclone trap. You can do some yeah. nice elaborate traps. Yeah. And I don't think many people actually know that you can do that. You can certainly the cyclone trap is brilliant. You can basically make it a vortex of fire, yeah. and it's it's crazy to see. You can put a cyclone trap on the ground, and then put one up in the ceiling, and then the next one on the ground again, and they can literally just bounce up and down and get annihilated. It's nice. super fun. Yeah, yeah, uh, and the protector trials kind of guide you always all through those. Hence why I know so many combos. The game actually does a poor job of explaining it outside of that DLC, unfortunately. But um, it's it's just all infinitely t- tighter <laughs> than the first game. It feels the realization of what the first game could have been. Yeah. Um, and it and it makes all encounters that much more fun. And obviously, with you now playing a big daddy, uh, you have the option of uh, still a little sister's harvesting, so you can be there and you need to protect the little sisters. I, I guess that's probably the biggest change in combat is that you're now the protector rather than the uh, the instigator of you know fighting the big daddies. Yeah, you're not the parasite anymore, you're um, guiding them. There is still a certain amount of, uh, you're doing it really, if we're going to be um, honest about this, you're doing it for the Adam, maybe yes. not necessarily for the compassion for the sisters themselves. Uh, but there's that uh, division of, of whether we are wholly slavish to the, the game or our own instincts, uh, because otherwise most of us would just have taken all the Adam from the sisters at the end. And I would imagine most people just save them. Yeah, I, see, I, <laughs> you didn't. I, no, no, no. I mean, I I loved the protector uh, sections of Bioshock too, but I know a, a number of people rescue the little sisters and then instantaneously throw them into the hidey hole. Yeah, um, yeah and don't yeah. want to engage the protection side of stuff at all, which baffles my off mind. Shots a lot of their plasmids. Yeah, it's what, not. Yeah, and perks and, and game that's much fun. Yeah, that's fifty yeah. percent of the gameplay. Yeah, though. It's most of the best yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I guess you know if they they don't. If they don't engage the player, then you know what you, know, you have an option to to bypass stuff. But for me, that's where the combat now you know really shines because you have to once again the, the rivet gun. But you can you can set trap rivets so they go on the floor and have beams of light, and you can you know the the, the splices run for them and get taken out really quickly. You can set mines down. Um, just turrets. little yeah, mini mini turrets are great. Mm. <laughs> they just remind you of uh, aliens or remind me of aliens anyway. And again, see? The evidence is really mounting up here. This one's aliens. Yeah, so I, I love I love all the protector stuff, and I think that's probably the biggest difference, but it just, all, it's all free-flowing. The first game is a series of running battles through the landscapes of Rapture, whereas now it's much more a case of optional siege situations. Rather than just charging through, you can stop off and engage in little horde modes. Yeah, it's taking the combat to your own terms. Yeah. yeah. Because it's less of a just get through this section and more of a right, what are you going to do now? And allowing you to plan it out and that you initiate when they're going to come at you 
which doesn't really happen in the first or even third games, it changes the nature of it and it becomes much more of challenging yourself at each time. Also, I think narratively, it's the one that I think Combat 6 the most easy with. I think in the first game, as I said before, that you are just an every every man with you know suddenly the use of plasmids and you you do over you know the what the odds are overly whelmed against you and you do survive. Now you know <laughs> obviously you could say there's a number of reasons, but it, it feels slightly narratively inconsistent. Um, two, being a big daddy, you know you are you are designed for this precise reason um and you know the fact that you like, say, engage in protecting the little system within the protector stuff it, it works really well i think the, the one that sits the most awkward with me is actually infinite i don't want to spoil that game for anyone else but you know it's it's ideas are grander than what i feel like the combat you know, like the combat feels slightly out of place and awkward within that game um because other stuff around it you know just, just I felt like, feel, feel like it was at odds with um, some of the deeper context of what yeah. was going on. Since um, we're going to be talking Columbia. about Infinite, uh, mostly plot related in the, that actual one, now is actually a time we can talk about Infinite's combat here. Uh, and it's been so long now, and I've played Bioshocks 1 and 2 and half of Minerva in between time, and it's starting to fade away for me as, as to exactly what the combat felt like. It felt more of an annoyance than the other games. I didn't feel like I was benefiting from it so much. There is no Big Daddy or Little Sister scenario. You can't really get more powerful from the combat that you're engaging in. There are just eight plasmids fed to you throughout the world. That's it. And while the handyman's handy men are mechanically, pardon the pun, similar to big daddies, when you face them, they're always aggressive. They're more like big sisters. So you don't have that dynamic of a fight that you start yourself and gain power from. In Bioshock's one, two and Minerva's Den, you hunt and stalk big daddies. You listen out for their calls. There's a certain respect you have for them. They're not actually your enemies. Handyman, you feel absolutely nothing for. Everything that you're coming up against is just yet another obstacle. There are no really optional fights. Uh, Maybe a couple that you're trying to get uh, Chivos on. So that's a big aspect of it. Um, And also, I don't think they, they... For me, in Infinite, I don't think they innovated enough on uh, what they call them. They don't call them plasmids. They vigors, yeah, vigors. Yeah, I, you know, I, and they're actually good for comboing. So you can obviously, I think it's the ball one. They knock mm. them up in the air, and then uh, you electrocute them while they're there. That, that, that stuff works fine. But they just switched bees for crows. Yeah, it's the yeah. same thing. I really feel like they could have gone completely, you know, maybe open tears, or you know, <laughs> that could be a spoiler. I suppose, but you know, maybe uh, use use what the narrative of Bioshock Infinite and use that within some of the vigors in, themselves. Um, just something they just felt really, really safe. I don't, I don't know why. I mean, I, and I played that on on hard as well, so I was I was trying to enjoy it as much as possible. So, mm. but I just oh, feel like yeah. two is the most balanced of all the three games. Like that, there is a reason for the combat to exist within that that universe. And, and um, you know, here's here's a pro tip. If, if you're playing hard, the drill is ridiculously overpowered and you should probably just stick Frost onto that and the one that makes it twice as hard. Um, I think the weapons in Bioshock 2 are quite interesting as well. Um, when you fully upgrade them, they have like properties that mm-hmm. wasn't available on the first Bioshock. So if I was running out of Eve and I needed electricity, I would switch to my souped-up shotgun, which yeah. would 
Yeah, the Tesla, the Tesla shotgun. And aspects of that are just far more interesting than what they were in the first Bioshock. Yeah. No. Another thing about um, the uh, the combat difficulty on uh, Infinite, I tried it on hard to begin with, and it began to wear me down. And I realised that every time I died, I was paying up twenty five dollars. And as I said last week, that became a really great way to game the system. Sometimes, if I was low on ammo, I was like, "Well, if I just die here, then I get four grenades back, and then I've got more of a chance <laughs> of taking this guy out." And then I'd effectively die and be mugged for twenty five dollars for no real reason. I suppose Elizabeth has to keep buying adrenaline to keep injecting you with again and again and again. Which is a great cure, by the way, for a smashed-in head. I, I realised after I played on half for a while that I was dying just more often than uh, I would if it was on normal, and just losing a lot more money. So in the end, I was going to end up limiting myself to what I could then buy throughout the game in the vending machines and upgrade. And yeah. I, I just felt like I was... that the fun of the game was trickling away. Yeah, I think the only reason to pl- for me to play Infinite on hard was because I wanted to use... I felt like I wanted to be put into situations where I had to use the Vigors. Um, otherwise, I'm just... you know, there, There's a lot of shooting in, in Infinite. And I was kind of finding myself just blasting through people and actually not using all my powers. And um, So, yeah. But, but the, the problem is I actually found that I once again I just kind of relied on on a singular tactic but you know throw them up in the air and electrocute them or just uh you know take the electric uh, shock one I wish I knew the name of it it's only been three weeks since I played it but um shock jockey shot that air take shot jockey uh, max it out to its very uh, top power and then just chain it between people which you know it basically you kill one person it moves to the next and next and next yeah. and next and next and they go down really really fast Sorry, shock jockey and undertow wiped people out because it was mm. that electricity water combo. Yeah, making them into uh, crow traps was great as well because once one guy dies, he ends up with crows flying around him. If someone just walks up into him, he's a crow mine and then explodes, <laughs> and then this guy gets crows, and it just keeps going on and on and on. So effectively, one very carefully placed row of crows could wipe out a whole bunch of guys, and that that was fun. But I think over time, I just it began to wear me down the amount of screams and men on fire and it's really grisly how many people who well, by the way don't have messed up faces like the splices they just look like regular people who are just extremely bloodthirsty it's quite graphic just, yeah screaming and blood and then the, when you hit them with the sky hook and then just rips their face apart i became deadened to the amount of absolute carnage not, not to pile on infinite any more than i already have but it also you can tell me whether this is spoiled or not and cut it out, but I felt like they sh- they should have done so much more with the tears as well. Um, you know, when... Um, oh, what's her name? Jesus. Elizabeth. That's it. God, she made an impact. Yeah, no, right. So when uh, you can call upon well, Elizabeth opens up tears, like, there was, okay, a hook here, a thing there, but it would have been interesting for them to be sucked out or something else to come through the environment. Yeah. You know, just something more imaginative than just, hey, here's a hook, now you can get a bit further over there, right? Like, ah, thanks. Uh, and, uh, you know, or here's a turret that's, you know, can be you know, someone that would have, wouldn't have been there, but then it's the same in, um, would have been the same in Columbia anyway. Those turrets are there. Now you're just calling something that, you know, wouldn't have been necessary in that environment, but was just there. It just became so, so frantic that it was like, whatever mm, you're closest to, hold X on. And the, and the, um, Skyhooking. Yeah, Skyhooking is called zip lines, but they're not. Deliberately turning it into an on-rail shooter, the one thing <laughs> that it didn't need to be, and the no, one thing it transcends. Beyond that, I mean, there, there's a lot of achievements which are tied to shooting people on the uh, the Skyhook like stuff. six! And 
I never, I never really found it that engaging. I, I would jump onto Skyhook, and it was merely really to get to the next area because it was. It, it didn't take you out of the combat. You kind of just went in circles, unless at one point that took you. Turn around. Yeah, and it's just yeah. like I wanted to jump from one to one. They could have made it a lot more, uh, you know, dynamic and As a way uh, interesting. Of from but hey, one side of the battlefield <laughs> to the next, it's actually great. But yeah. the rigmarole. If you're going for the chivas, the rigmarole of you've got to shoot six people off this thing, or like shooting people while they're in midair. That's mm. a tough one. And I when mean, you're drunk. I mean, um, like I said earlier, um, the E3 demos, demonstrations a couple of years ago of Bioshock Infinite um, displayed much more interest in Skyrail combat where there was almost like jousts going on and yeah. mm-hmm. you leaping from more than just two separate rails. It was phenomenal and <clears throat> the end result was uh, a bit of disappointment for me. Actually, it turned it into a mobile turret section. Because you were on the skyhook, and you could choose to be... You could move around, which was great, but you were effectively on... It's the same... You've got the crosshairs, you're on the helicopter, and it's taking you from one place yeah. to the other. But like That's I said, the beauty of the Bioshock games is that it's not a shooting gallery. And the irony is that you actually start off the game playing shooting galleries. Yeah. I just... Yeah. I, 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 that's the problem with Bioshock games. I think they're... It, it does so much right. Certainly in story, it, it's, yeah. it's very and Columbia itself is is a, you know a, a really great once again brilliant visual storytelling of a place. But there is elements of it's a step I didn't care for in yeah. terms of combat. The other aspect of it was actually the guns. The whole you can only hold two at a time. And I said this last week. It limits what you eventually use. I found myself only using what I needed for the chivos. Yeah, same it's thing. like why well, I've got to get like 200 kills with the machine gun or whatever it was. It's, it seemed an excessive amount and you can't, you can't really use plasmids so much. So that because of the chivos, I ended up mostly using guns and fairly boring ones two at a time and trying to be a bit, a bit more sparing with the, um, uh, vigors. Maybe it's just that the achievements were really badly managed against the actual combat restricting rather than freeing the guns are boring in infinite though aren't they i mean compared to the the, the weapon that you get in bioshock one and two it's very disappointing there's, there's less the, exotic guns definitely yes yeah um I, I don't know let's stop ripping on the uh, combat yeah. for infinite now because ultimately we can talk about infinite later but i will say that was the least engaging part of infinite for me and i love most of the rest of infinite this, if we're going to turn it back to Bioshock 2, and sorry if it sounds like we were spoiling aspects of Infinite, Irrational did that themselves. <laughs> Bioshock 2 is where the combat peaks in the series at the moment, and I'd really like the future games to go back and look at what they were doing right here. Infinite, you get two guns, it becomes your very small arsenal that you have to depend on, and you have ammo for everything. Bioshock 2, it feels more like you've got a toolbox of fun and mm. that you're never too far from a gene machine, so you can always bring in plasmids. It, there is no analogue for that. There's no gun machine that you can just bring in other uh, weapons in your arsenal in uh, Infinite. You are literally left with what is lying around on the battlefield, and they tend to be dependent on who you've been fighting. The other thing it's important not to forget is that they switched gene tonics in Bioshock Infinite for gear. And the fact that rather than just having slots for that, you have very specific choices for what you can wear, and you it significantly limits you on 
the variety of abilities that you can attach. We all take tonics for granted. They were what the gene station was really for because there's only 10 plasmids and 8 slots. So it wasn't really like there were that many that you'd have to sacrifice. But there were so many tonics and the slots were all optional that you'd have to buy. So gear, actually, I, I didn't really find myself fiddling with it all that much. And as a result, combat stayed very much the same. Tonics, I kept switching out all the time just to you know give myself just a tiny little boost or make it a bit more you know sort of focus on one particular weapon. If one aspect of combat was beginning to drag me down, I'd uh, boost it in the tonic section. It seems like they dialed back on even the combat in Bioshock One, and because they're not actively observing Bioshock Two as an evolution of that, it's gone back and back again. So it's almost two steps back. I, I would say this though, I, I did into I over relied on bees. <laughs> I, I used bees. Uh, the bees were awesome. They they're are just, good. They, I took your they, advice and used yeah, them at a super they, amount. They are one. They are funny. <laughs> well, yes. If you, if you like to see people running around covered in bees <laughs> every time, I did it. It's, it the, it's the splicer's <laughs> dialogue that got me. It's <laughs> like they, they, you know, they're spouting all of this incredibly tough guy shit, and then it's oh my god, oh my god, not bees. I mm-hmm. hate bees. Oh, I remember someone yelling, "I'm allergic." <laughs> You're allergic to fire as well. <laughs> Yes, uh, bees and a drill, uh, and I was set, really, but... (laughs) There's an evolution of how fast you move across the battlefield as well, because in the first one you trundle around as Jack, and there's always that tantalising idea that you might be able to take on the teleportation splicer abilities, the uh, Houdins, but you never really get it. In Bioshock 2, with the drill dash, you can propel yourself across the battlefield very fast, which can be used very tactically. And then in Infinite, you can get an aerial... Uh, superiority on the battlefield and leap 30, 40 feet directly up into the air to skyhook yourself on. Maybe it's done with magnets. Um, and then leap 30, 40 feet down and not break your shin bones. But, magnets uh, again. Yeah. Uh, the uh, only extension of that in Bioshock 4 will be if you can fly. Or if you but have you a jetpack. See, see, but once again, like we, we come back to this fact, and you know, everyone talks about the gameplay being fantastic in Bioshock Two, and it and it is even with the you know the new Bioshock, I still feel like it's the it's the most grounded, both in narratively, both in gameplay, and actually in fun. Like in all aspects, I just think Two is where all the elements come together and they shine, and and that's not an irrational game. I mean, we haven't talked about this, but it, it's a game developed by five separate studios. Yeah, like it, on paper, it shouldn't work. Um, how many, you know, there's many games that we, you, you know, if you go look in games that are over multiple studios that are complete and utter failures because there's not one single visionary. You yeah. could argue that the well, visionary has already been there. Like Jordan Thomas took directing duties in Bioshock 2, mm-hmm. and he is a visionary. You know, I mean, after Bioshock 2, Levine insisted that he join up with them for Infinite. Um, so he can't so, have hated it that. So he's like, I hate Bioshock 2, could you come and work for me? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was in his letter. Yeah. <laughs> hate I've what you played. did there, it's rubbish, yeah. you completely messed with my story, what you want to do is come and work on Infinite. Alright, <laughs> cheers. So, I think you'd be crazy not to accept an invitation from Ken Levine. But yeah, carry on Tony, sorry. You so eloquently you know, summed it up at the, the end of the, the monologue at the start, it's, you know, many people won't talk about Bioshock 2. And even me, I find myself apologising for putting it in within my, you know, my top ten games of all time. And it's just a ridiculous scenario, all because 
Bioshock 1 has this amazing plot twist, um, which, you know, I, I fully admit I didn't see coming at the time. But then it has a really dodgy second half of that game. It's not um, just the plot twist. There is an incredible world created setting, in yeah. Bioshock. Exactly, yeah. Bioshock 1 is in my top 10 games of yeah. all time as well. So They couldn't really succeed completely in whatever they set out to do with 2. No. If they changed it too much, they'd get people complaining they changed it too much. If they didn't change it enough, which is what they did, you didn't add enough to it. This is Jeff Weir, animation supervisor for Bioshock 2. You know, being new to the Bioshock franchise, it was a huge, you know, like weight on my shoulders. I mean, I knew how much everyone loved the first game and how wonderful it was. And um, for me, it was just took a really long time to really just study it and understand what it is that made it what it was. Um, like I said, um, Bioshock to me is a very complicated mix of ingredients. Um, it's like a, this curry of, of like 25 ingredients. It's not like a simple dish. It's like this thing where you put some of this, some of that, some of this in it, and then all of a sudden it just starts tasting wrong. So it takes a long time to figure out what it is that makes Bioshock Bioshock. And um, for me, it was just exciting to sort of basically dive into like Kogi's brain or Jordan's brain and, and sort of figure out what it was to them and sort of drilling in this, drilling this idea of what Bioshock really is. And- uh, a curry with lots of ingredients that if you unbalance it with one spice mm-hmm. too many, it, the whole thing tastes horrible. This is best described as a very well-balanced, complex and solid curry that you don't really appreciate until you examine all the elements separately and go, you know what? There were so many layers to this thing. It may not have been the most complex of all the games, but as a standalone, it's the most consistent. Mm-hmm. Going from Bioshock 1 to Bioshock 2's animation, one of the main areas of focus was in the idea of character empathy. By that, we mean we want people to really care about the characters they're seeing in the game. Um, so for that, um, we wanted to make characters that had more detail in their faces. So when you came up to them, you could you know, understand their plight and their loss and everything that happened to them. And uh, so for that, we... Um, have a full set of blend shape animations um, for their face, and we also did things like normal map um, blending, which means that if someone goes from being like a straight normal face to being like this, you can see little wrinkles forming in, in, in their forehead and, and little crow's feet around their eyes and that kind of stuff. And that basically gives you more to latch onto in terms of the character. Well, basically, um, for animation, what we do first is um, we talk with Jordan, our creative director, um, and we try to figure out who the character really is. For the big sister, um, he was, she was a really interesting character because she's um, what happens to a little sister when she grows up and, and becomes someone like a big daddy. And for her, that meant that she had this really awkward quality to her where she, was, she just grew a foot in, in a period of a year and she's um, not used to her body. And uh, that made her kind of this, this idea of this kind of unstable grace where, where she kind of was starting to become, be someone who, who had this beautiful womanly quality but still was sort of gangly and not really sure of how to you know, handle herself. So, so once we have that idea figured out, we start working on previous ideas um, of how she actually would move. Um, for that, I, I might get up and sort of walk really funny around the room or, or we might look at some, some footage of a, a ballet dancer and someone who's a, a paraplegic, you know, and sort of get inspiration from all different sources. And then we start just doing animation. And from there, we just start testing things out in the game and seeing how it feels and, and then seeing what, what resonates with the character. Graphical ups and downs. When I got to Persephone and it got really frantic, I don't know if this is the same on the PC version, but I got texture pop like crazy. There were times, and I showed you this, Sharon, when I'd walk into a corridor and there'd be no texture. I'd look down at the floor and it'd be sort of a, a grey swamp. And then after a few seconds it would go, bit of texture. A few more seconds, bit more texture. And then a few more seconds, all the texture. And I'd be like, seriously? I'd turn around and look at the room behind me, no texture. And then it would go, because it had so much to handle all at once. PC version's fine. PC version's fine, there we go. Yeah. 
Um, I've just finished playing it and I've had it at a stupidly high resolution. Mm. Um, 2560 by 1440, getting 120 frames a second. And yeah, it's no popping at all. It's dodgy textures aside, it's still a very nice looking game. There are t- everything seems solid because of the Unreal Engine, very chunky. But if you look closely on 360 at like a bench or a wall or a faucet, if it's not something that they've designed to be like hyper textured straight up, then it will just look like a blob. And it's actually quite distracting. And I felt this more in Bioshock 2 than any of the other ones. That's a shame. Yeah. It must just be the 360 version then. Well, the, the PS3 version is actually, it runs at 720p, so it's actually, it's, it's quite grainy. That makes sense. It's, it's not as sharp as, uh, right. as the 361 can be as well, so. Yeah, I think they, yeah, they've all got their issues and the, the PC one's obviously the best one. The problem with the PC one, it doesn't have controller support. No. Unless you do a lot of, you know, third party trickery yeah. to get it up mm-hmm. and running. Um, it's just mouse and keyboard and having played a bit of both, I, I'm, I think the games feel better mm-hmm. with a uh, controller in hand. It's a bit too, uh, mouse and keyboard is a bit too precise, uh, for oh, that. I like that's, that precision. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> it did. No. That's a, that's a whole different conversation for another day, but I find, always find mouse and keyboard breaks my immersion with a game quite a bit, because it's downright precision. Is it just Bioshock 2 that the controller support's disabled? I know the Bioshock, the first Bioshock game does have contro- uh, controller support. Yeah, I think that was, that was added in at a later date as well. Ah, right, so. okay. The next thing I've got on the graphical ups and downs is expressions, because I really felt this while playing the first game. Every model that you meet in the first game has one expression, and it's hideously unrealistic in terms of even Tenenbaum, when you see her just sort of standing on the balcony and she's sort of aiming a gun at you, she's this weird wax doll creep, this horrible automaton. Like it, it, it fits in with the whole ghost train thing because everyone seems like a, yeah, something out of Ryan's amusements. A lot of the splicers are wearing masks anyway. Yeah, you, you don't notice it quite so much on, on the splicers with the, the masks on, but uh, characters who've actually got a face, or uh, usually you'll find it with people who go behind the glass... Here's the thing I'll mention about the entire Bioshock series. So often you come up against your nemesis you've been talking to or a friend you've been talking to on the radio and they're behind bulletproof glass and they sort of look at you and then they talk and then they either go elsewhere or die horribly and you can't affect it. And it's a fine magic trick for the first one, but by the time I was on Infinite, I was like, right, okay, so I'm seeing such and such a character... I'm never going to influence this one. Bioshock 2 is one of the only ones where you actually get to go through that door and then decide what you want to do with three of the characters. If you've got a narrative story where you're supposed to meet people but have the ability to kill them, it's a really tough line. A lot of video games, they have it so that you can sort of aim your gun around them but never directly at them. Yeah, no, I, sort of it goes up I, and over. I'm, I'm a firm believer. I think Bioshock One would have been, uh, or just Bioshock would have been a, a more interesting game if you, know, you have the choice of Ryan and you choose not to. Yeah, and then that's it, just game over. I mean, that would have been fascinating. You I are mean, a man. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations, and then like five hours of gameplay lopped off because yeah. you chose. To, but it would have been a brave move. But obviously, you know, narrative wise, they, they decide to stick with a singular option. But they know. could have changed the uh, end of the game around, given you a similar sort of quest to do, just with different mode. I and mean, you'd still go off and kill Atlas, forcing you to go through this. You are a slave. You're doing it. It's 
you know what? Probably we still we wouldn't be talking about it six years afterwards if we had been able to choose because it wouldn't have been anywhere near as powerful. I, I but, don't know. Uh, the rap, the uh, Bioshock itself is a you know such a fantastic universe. Yeah. I think we would still be talking about it. Uh, yeah, I think we would. But the the, the killing of Andrew Ryan is going to stick with us and haunt us because oh, we felt yeah. powerless to actually prevent it, and and it was a commentary on having lack of agency in a game. Uh, do, do you feel uh, something slightly off the plot here? But Go for do it. you do you feel like um two is is lacking one of those moments because i mean everyone will you know talk about the andrew ryan moment and you know because it's one of the best one of the best moments in gaming and you know i i can personally think of great moments in bioshock 2 but it doesn't have that absolute stellar moment that everybody remembers i mean for me it's the little sister moment yeah. um but i can yeah. see why that that may be not as powerful as the andrew ryan moment for everyone else in all seriousness, I think the, the the realizing that's what the little sister saw was as powerful for me. As yeah, the for me as well, but I, I, I think we're in a the minority there. I, no, no, I'm with you. I'm with you. Bear in mind that I didn't engage that much with the first game because I had it on easy and I wasn't really paying too much attention. I didn't realize how important this game was going to be. Had I been paying attention, <laughs> the Andrew Ryan killing would probably have had more of an impact. Um, but it, that one was a slow burner. I began to think about it more and more. And in fact, the thing that unlocked it for me completely was Mark, your video. It just made me, oh, you, you had a really great way of, uh, of, uh, looking at the, the game in super depth. And, and Kane and Rince absolutely helped that one as well, just to, uh, um, to, to go into more depth as to, as to what all of this was about, which kind of, in conjunction with Infinite, sparked my interest in this series. As I said last week, this was not a podcast series I was planning on doing. Uh, but but even in, in, in the Kane Rinse series that we did on the games, um, two, we talked about elements, just elements of two. Like in, in Bioshock, we, we went into great detail of Egypticism and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and two, we, you know, there was, we talked about the individual moments. So there's, you know, you have obviously the little sister moment, um, and the Grace Holloway moment, which is a, a really impactful moment as well. So like there's, there's individual elements of that, but the gameplay, almost we come to the conclusion, the gameplay was so compelling between those moments that people focused a lot more into the actual playing of the game than the actual, um, delving into the the story elements although the story elements were brilliant a lot of people have blamed the fact that because rapture was so fully explored in the first game it didn't have that sense of haunted house what's in here because you knew what was in rapture at this point there wasn't people going in didn't feel like there was much more that they could discover they did but there's a i've I've read reviews where they said for the first 10 hours of the game nothing happens which is Apparently not true, but clearly for a lot of people, it didn't engage. Yeah, the the, the phrase, and this really galled me at the time, um, straight to DVD version oh, of Bioshock. Oh, no, no, that was everywhere, and I was like, it's it's far better than that. Like, I maybe I can understand what they're trying to Let's say. Let's not get is, hyper defensive. I said at the beginning, we don't need to defend it. It is no, but, good. It speaks for itself. And and that's the the general populace was oh well, you know, Bioshock two can't be as you know can't be as good as the first i heard the term cash in a lot yes. um yeah and when you know you go off to you wander off to metacritic now you could you know argue that it's uh, it's pretty much like 89 yeah it's it's right up there was one of the you know the great games of certainly of this generation now that you know getting all kind of hyperbole about a, a series i love but you know it's once again apologizing for you know a game you know a second game in the series just because the first is that grand i want you to stop apologizing for bioshock 2 you don't need to 88 percent on metacritic going back to earlier moments i mean i, I loved gil alexander alexander mm-hmm. the great the flying sentry bot with his opera singing 
<laughs> just hilarious, much needed humour. Mm. And, and, and it worked effectively. And then having to kill him horribly to be kind. Well, I didn't do it. You didn't? No. You left him alive, you sadistic. I killed him in my first playthrough, and my second playthrough, I left oh, right. him alive. Okay. okay, well, yeah, I suppose that's to see something different. Compassionate. Yeah, the only one I left alive was Grace. Um, Stanley. So you killed Stanley? Yeah, he had to go. Yeah. I know what you're here for. Go on, take it. I won't have you touching me. Dr. Lamb trusted me to care for her child. And I tried. But baby Eleanor disappeared. And then one day, I see her walking with you. Looking wrong. And when I tried to hold her, you knocked me down. Broke my jaw. So I'm ready, baby snatcher. Come on in and finish the job. Your call, friend. Grace is unarmed for what it's worth. What are you doing? Come on, you goddamn monster. Do what you always do. Come on! To hell with you, then. Come on. You're a bigger man than I am, Chief. Maybe next time she'll think twice about pointing fingers before all the facts are in. Now, let's be on our way. Eleanor's waiting. I could never do it, and I never will whenever I play through the game. Grace is brave and fragile, and at this point can do absolutely nothing to harm you. There's actually a butterfly motif that runs throughout the game. It's symbolic of the chrysalis that Eleanor emerges from. But it actually extends to the tiny aspects of Rapture that are still left with some sense of virtue, even if, like Grace, they're not entirely innocent. That fragility is something that I, as a player, felt compelled to set free, despite or possibly because of the fact that I was committing such atrocities with all the splicers. There are expressions, different expressions, on the splicers and on the characters that you meet. Grace... She will do different things and react differently depending mm-hmm. on what you do, and her face changes. They seem alive in this game. And no one ever credits Bioshock 2 with being the game where the characters were brought to life. But just, when you play Bioshock 1 again, try to imagine Andrew Ryan wearing a rubber mask over his face and it looking any different to his actual fixed expression. It's not dissimilar to Resident Evil 2 in that respect. There's beautiful detail. When you see Tenenbaum, yeah. she's she's all dishevelled, and you automatically assume that's due to her just getting up in the morning and her first priority are the children. In Bioshock 2 here? In Bioshock yeah. 2, yeah. In Bioshock 1, she's just a remoulded splicer. Yeah, yeah. They couldn't you, be, well, they didn't have time, or they couldn't be bothered. They, they, didn't, they didn't credit her with enough of a, a, a face. She's supposed to look like, if you go to her uh, page on the wiki... Uh, she bears a striking resemblance to the actress Geraldine Fitzgerald. And it, it, they've just literally taken a photo of Geraldine Fitzgerald and then photoshopped it into this uh, Bridget Tenenbaum. So because Br- Geraldine Fitzgerald actually lived to a ripe old age, you can actually see her uh, as, as Tenenbaum would now look. 
Yeah. There was the details as well, the small details, like one of our sleeves are rolled up, is rolled up and you can see the, the, the camp tattoo, number tattoo in her arm. Oh, Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's just, you know, it's not nice, but it's, it's a lovely detail that they've added in Bioshock too. Yeah. With regard, this is, sorry, just something I wanted to okay. say with regard to the idea of um, there being striking moments, um, or particularly an Andrew Ryan moment in Bioshock 2. For me, there very definitely is, and it's the point at which you realise how much impact what you've done has had on Eleanor, yeah. and how she's chosen who to be because of the things she's seen you do. Yeah. There's there's no moment after the Andrew Ryan moment which measures up to the Andrew Ryan moment. So, yes, that situation comes at the very, very end, where, if we think about it properly, it should. If you have a huge moment like that in the mm. second act, finishing off your game, it's all downhill from there. It's lovely, because essentially you're the father and you're teaching the moral, your, your yeah. moralities, to your, you're passing your moralities on to your, your siblings, you know. Mm. I didn't even realise how impactful it was at the time. It wasn't until, uh, Alex, you pointed me in the direction of the uh, the wiki page that gives you all the permutations of how Eleanor can be. And I think as well that... Uh, the closing scenes with her again this is where the the facial expressions and the character models are really going to come into their own because all you see at that point is her face and her eyes and the way she holds her mouth and everything about the way she stands other than than what's going on in the background which obviously does differ as well that's your clues that, that her words are going to be borne out because she will look aggressive or she will look forgiving or she will look confused or you know what i mean those those um methods of communication that are non-verbal come through when you have that graphical fidelity yeah it it is funny as well because i i've said in the past about bioshock bioshock one being is a much more subtle game than bioshock two is but actually on the face of it, I think two is probably more subtle in, in the way that, you know, it, as you're talking, Sharon, like, you know, there, there is all that facial stuff, but also the way that you're influencing the environment. And when you look at the Andrew Ryan moment, it's this big reveal. And you could say the subtlety has been obviously you know, the trickery that's been played for you for the first, you know, four or five hours of that game, yeah. uh, then leading to one great big reveal. But there's nothing subtle about how the game then continues after the, the reveal of Andrew Ryan. Um, you know, to your journey towards the back end of the game, because it's all basically face value. Where in, in it's a, two, a it's fetch the, quest followed by an escort quest followed by an end boss fight. Yeah, and two, it's completely different. In, in fact, there's loads of little subtle changes that are happening, and you know, you're instigating them, but you don't actually know as a player. And, and maybe the fact is they're lost on many people as they they go through the experience, not knowing exactly what they are changing. How, how did the sitting? Because in Bioshock One, there was more of a central hub feel to to the game, so you'd, you know, yeah. you'd wander from area and revisit the same the central location over and over again um and in bioshock 2 it was very much you're on the tram system and you'd visit one place you would complete that in, entire series of quests mm, um complete area and then completely dis you know not disregard but just that is behind you now there's no you know, going back there and re-exploring things so once you had done you would you have been done i mean i i found that certainly when i first played the game i, I found actually found i thought this wasn't as as good or as interesting as the, as bioshock one's uh, central area but actually going through it a second time i found the backtrack in a bioshock one to be quite annoying and actually yeah. i really like the, you know, there's this cut off like you've done that area now you've seen it there is no more to explore now move on 
That does emphasise the narrative differences between the two games, though, because mm-hmm. if you think about the central theme of uh, Bioshock 1 being this idea of a man chooses a slave obeys, you are given um, a semblance of choice. You have this central hub and you're the one who gets to pick where you go. In Bioshock 2, you are very definitely a slave. Um, you, you know, you've been imprisoned in this suit and you've been given your orders and that's what you stick to. And you follow this, this line that you're given, the tasks that you're, uh, you're given to carry out. Hold but on, also, hold on, hang on. Who, who gives you your orders as a big daddy? Well, alright. It seems more, to me, more like Delta is doing this for Eleanor. Mm-hmm. Okay, <laughs> orders is the wrong way to put it. Then, but you have a goal, you have a specific thing that you are designed to do, almost, which is to protect Eleanor and to, yeah. to look after her. Yeah. Um, there but, is an imperative there, but it's not something you're necessarily absolutely beholden to. And certainly right. the way you do it is entirely up to you. Yeah, but then the twist exists in both games as well because um, having been set up with this semblance of choice throughout Bioshock 1, the end result is you have no control. This is all taken away from you. Um, and and then what you know once you've gone through this scene where you, you literally have no agency because you can't do anything at all, and I still maintain that scene would have been better if they'd found a way to give you some method of being involved in what was happening, even if it was simply the fact that every button that you pressed on your controller would swipe Andrew Ryan with the go- with the golf club. If you had, you know, whatever you tried to do, you would just keep attacking him. I remembered what game it was that uh, whatever you press, you start trying to attack somebody that you actually really don't want to attack. It's actually Final Fantasy VII. While Eris is kneeling, praying, Cloud stands over her, and if you press the buttons to back away, he starts to raise his sword. But as we said before, the timing and the framing of the Andrew Ryan murder scene requires removal of that interaction. I think um, they, they, they didn't do that because yeah. that would have had too many gamers putting down their pads and going, right, well, no, if, if t- touching anything makes me hit him, I'm not going to. And then they'd fold their arms wow. and then start an art installation in their living room. Beyond that, the control of narrative storytelling, it, you end up in the Half-Life 2 scenario where people are standing on Andrew Ryan's head and hitting you know, the yeah. hit, like, <laughs> it, it would, would take a magical moment and completely break it apart yeah. because gamers are fickle. It, yeah, no, Ken, yeah. Ken Levine has some background as, as you yeah. keep saying, Mark, is in theatre and so that had to be very or turd that moment. Okay, yes. and that's that's fair enough. Yeah. But the, the the tail end of the game, though, you're going through these scenarios where, you know, you, your choices are taken away, and you you end up doing all these things that you would predictably expect to see at the tail end of a video game. Whereas in Bioshock Two, again, it, you've got this almost biological genetic imperative to protect, to defend, to find, to to look after, to seek all the things that Eleanor wants you to, to, to help her become who she's going to become. And to sacrifice and yourself for her. Exactly. And at, then at the very, very end, that's when you find out that you had the supreme control all along because what you've done has shaped her as a person. Yeah. I think for me, we were talking about the hub structure and in the second game... It's very linear. It actually kind of made sense for me because the imperative is to go and save Eleanor, yeah. you know, and backtracking and, and dilly-dallying um, kind of like well, breaks that sort of 
Jilly dallied finding all the cream cakes. Yeah, definitely. no, I say like, you're still. I didn't go back a couple of levels to to find that one tape because you know, yeah. I'd love imagining games of you know breaking outside of the confines because you know you, ultimately you're still a puppet of other people's. You know, oh well, I I, I want to get out of this place, so please, you know, go here, do this, and fetch that, and then I'll finally let you get back on the tram and, and on you go on your way. It would have been nice just to break down a door and go, yeah, I'm, like, I'm a big daddy. I don't really need to use a tram. I just walk. Like, anything outside of that. In terms of visual storytelling, this is just a slide thing. I love it when I find occasionally harpoons embedded in glass windows and they're cracked and there's seawater coming in through them. Just ever just tiny streams of it. And it's like, who fired these at the windows? <laughs> Would you please mind not shooting at the nuclear weapons? That was one thing that kind of broke my whole loot everything, pick up everything, because I, I would always hesitate if when I, I saw one of those things. If I pull this out, is that, am I going to flood this corridor? What a great moment that would have been, though. Yeah. Yeah. Shame <laughs> over forever. You killed Rapture. That, that happens, though. There is that great scene um, towards the end of the Rapture where... Um, the glass breaks in one of the big chambers yeah. and that, that is actually an area you've been been to a couple of times it's a yeah. fairly big area and it completely washes out and, and kind of changes I, I wish I I knew this when I, we did the podcast exactly what it was because I just there's played it there's three of them uh, they, there's the first one is when you're in uh, Adonis and the big mm-hmm. sister attacks you she takes out the yeah. windows and the whole thing's flooded second time is when you're in Siren Alley and you've just defeated the father, uh, Simon Wales, and then uh, Sophia Lamb floods the place, and you have to walk back amongst the floating dead, as she puts it. And the third time is at the very, very end, when you go back through Persephone. Yeah, so it's the second time it, you've, you've been within that place a number of times. And, In fact, um, no, it's, it, not, it's not back through Persephone. It's just after you've gotten through the last fight. And it's, so, it's very end. But it completely changes the environment because, yeah, everything's now floating, everything's now underwater, and you feel like a completely different beast walking through this this place that you know, was once there and you just, very much the gravity was a, a part of. They must have thought about some sort of underwater combat scenario and then dismissed it and gone, yeah, you know what, the underwater combat in Devil May Cry, not so good, so let's not <laughs> do that. Uh, one more thing that I haven't mentioned in terms of graphics, the sister redesigns, which if you go back to the original, they look like these weird goblin children, which they're supposed to. You're not supposed to see them as little girls until the very end of the game, when well, at least when you get to the orphanage and um, this is where they sleep. But for this second game, you knew that they were the only thing innocent in Rapture. And... To a degree, because you're looking at them from the perspective of a big daddy, they have to look more, not to put too fine a point on it, cute and uh, appealing. First one, the remit seems to be, they're little girls with a demonic appearance. This one, it's despite their demonic appearance, they're still little girls. They've still retained these demonic little yellow glowing eyes that glow in the dark. The one thing that changes... Well, there's a huge difference to the way that they engage with you. In, in the first game, they just say... You, you just grab them after you've killed their big daddy and they say... No! 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 Thank you. But in this one, when you pick them up and they go... I'm always safe with Daddy. 
and then you put them on your shoulder and become their appointed protector. So even though you've brutally murdered their guardian and stolen them for your own gain, they are entirely dependent on you to choose what happens to their life. Now that obviously didn't affect a lot of people, but for me it made me feel the protection imperative straight away. Expertly handled in terms of making sure that you felt that these girls were important more than just for the Adam. And also their innocence. There is a great one-off thrown off line, which I don't know if you've ever heard, and it's when you're upgrading one of your weapons in the... the was it Power of the People Station, I think they're called? Yeah. Um, so um, I upgrade. I think I upgraded my uh, my missile launcher, or grenade launcher, and um, she said... Even daddy's toys have toys. That's the one, yeah. It's yeah, brilliant yeah. because, I mean, she doesn't see this as a gun. I mean, you hmm. can, you know, from that point, you don't really know what she is seeing you know, within that world, but she just, she's seen it as a toy. It's like, oh, it's just, it's a little toy gun. That's, that's fantastic. But even daddy's toys have toys. When it's you, great. when you are a little sister and you see discarded guns on the ground, they're like 1950s space toy ray guns. Mm. So, need of felt. Yeah. My favourite throwaway line was when you incinerate somebody, she goes, Marshmallow! Oh my God. <laughs> so dark. It is pretty dark. I tell you what I would have really loved to see, actually. When you when you take the little sister form, mm. um, there's a few points where you can see um, her shadow running along the wall. Yeah. Um, I would have loved for her to run past a mirror or a reflective surface so you could see how they see themselves. I think it would have been, it's considering the dress, considering everything else, they would have seen themselves as angelic little children. Yeah, but, mm-hmm. but that's, that's kind of my point. They, they would see themselves as, as not these despoiled creatures, but as the little girls that they are supposed to be. Yeah. So I want to warn you, laddie, though I think you're perfectly swell, that my heart belongs to daddy, cause my daddy, he treats it Hacking and research on the fly. Vast improvement on the research of the original where you just like snap, 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 snap. The, um, it's still a bit fiddly to get the camera working when you're being bearing, as a brute bearing down on you. And that's why I ended up having to research him last of all. I just got in under the wire to get the Achiever, the, uh, in Persephone. But, um, uh, but yeah, the little sort of the video camera aspect of it. And similarly, hacking, rather than the Pike Mania game, hack, the, the, there was more of a juggling act with hacking of like, can I get this thing while I'm being attacked? And it became about, yeah, you know, do I, it, the, the risk reward thing, they shifted the focus on getting it done really quickly, but making it about a difference of a second. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's there's a pressure on you because you're being attacked and you just want to stop doing that. But it's like, if I can get this done, I might survive. Now, without the Vita Chambers on, hacking safes became something I really didn't need to do, but <laughs> terrifying. Because if the alarms went off and the bots came, I was dead. So Only ever hack a safe when you know where the bot alarm switches yeah. to turn them off. Isn't it funny, actually, that the, uh, when the gang of bots come down on you, they can do a lot more damage than almost any other enemy other than the uh, the yeah. big sister. Uh, lethal. Yeah, if, if Atlas wanted to really mess me, I mean, I'd just send <laughs> ten bots after me. A whole it's area of bots. Getting a bead on them to actually yeah. shoot the hack darts was impossible, I found. Yeah. And actually, if you, if you just, if you've got relatively low powered, um, electro bolt stuff, then you just, you're firing left and right and they're just going, witty, witty. 
There, there was nothing wrong with the, the hacking in the first game. I mean, I, the Pipe Mania game is fun as a Pipe Mania game. The problem is when you're trying to do it at any speed whatsoever. So after the tenth time, you, you've had your fill of Pipe Mania, and then you're just left with, oh my god, can which play, and like you're filling up any of your, your extra slots, uh, tonics with, please just make the Pipe Mania game go faster, <laughs> um, and not using it. Go for, away. Yeah, just, just, if, and then I found myself in the first game just. If there was ever, a, if I ever had the money, just buy out. Like I just, I'd had enough of the Pipe Mania game done. Yeah. There was very few occasions where I thought buy out was a, a valid option in the hacking of two because it was quick. There was a risk reward. I mean, I always went for the blue. Sometimes, you know, it was the wrong decision, <laughs> and I would find myself all but being killed because I, I made that decision. But you know, just save your auto hack stuff for the safes. Uh, they're pretty cheap to buy in the, the machines as well. But it, it was a fun, quick and thing. And quite often, when the bots came out, you could jump up in the air hit the X button <laughs> and then hack them on the fly if you could do yeah. it fast. I think so the, being able to get them from the other side of the room meant opened up so many versatile ways of uh, put harnessing them for combat. You don't even have to go into a room, but if there's slices going through drawers and there's a camera right above them, you hack the camera <laughs> and you just stand back and watch that it all turn into chaos. It's brilliant. One of the biggest issues I had with the hacking and the photographing in the first game was that it broke the tempo. Yeah. If I was in combat, it breaks that tempo. Cause you oh, that baby, special. show me love. <laughs> and so much improved in the second game. Yeah. Yeah. Once again, doesn't reinvent the wheel, but it, it does... It it just looks at it in a, a sensible way. Yeah, it gives it a snazzy tyre. <laughs> yeah, puts, puts an alloy on it, makes it look cool. But no, yeah. it's just... It, it just makes it, it's a, it's a very subtle and, and, and you know, basic change, but it, it, it changed, it massively changed up the gameplay because you could do it quickly and on the fly. On a down note, in terms of the music and the score, which was great, but had less really standout songs uh, in, in it than the first one, although there was a preponderance of daddy-related songs. The thing I was going to uh, um, say weakened it was having songs on the loading screens. And if you're playing on hard and you mm. die a lot, and I died a lot, then you hear the first 30 seconds of like four or five songs throughout the game. So I heard this one. Fifteen times at Pauper's Drop. Spend all my money, I didn't care. And I'm the Just, oh, I heard that so many times. Just, I, I don't mind the song, but can I hear the second 30 seconds of it? This, this, it just, oh. So that was a bad idea. And there was less of a, a real feeling that there were very specifically carefully arranged pieces of music within the gameplay itself 
you know, there's less of that, how much is that doggy in the window moment in the first one. I think it feels a little bit more mechanic. Um, mm. you know, a little, maybe it is a little bit more by committee. You know, they know how, how great the, the score was in the first game. And, you know, it's the obvious choices are you know, put in there and then a few more. Uh, and, and that's not the only thing. And we kind of drifted away a little bit from the environment itself, but a couple of times I, you know, I felt some of the graffitis on the, on the wall, you know, Sophia Lamb graffitis, mm. um, were just a bit over the top. Like it, it felt like there was a little bit more, maybe there wasn't, um, an authorship in, in the first game that kind of would have resisted putting a little bit less kind of obvious stuff there but it's, it's not to spoil the, the whole experience but yeah a couple of times I felt like uh, you know they one one step too far and I think the music you, you're spot on is one but it's still I mean it's, it still does what the first game does which is there's very little music uh, in, in, in in many of the combat scenes or anything like that there's actually um, 24 tracks in the, in the entire game and the first game uh, had 21 so there's more music in this one Mm, but you know, they use music sparingly, and they they use it for like the bigger moments. And the, the first game did that brilliantly, um, and the second game does actually follow. But it has yeah, maybe one too many obvious choices. That as not so much as obvious, they have a really canny knack in all of these games of making what's being said apply in a twisted way to what's happening. You always heard the one you love is around about the time where when you're finding out how you became a big daddy, uh, memories of you. Um, there's Daddy's Little Girl, My Heart Belongs to Daddy, and Daddy Won't You Please Come Home on the soundtrack. So it's all... Uh, th- these are pieces of music that the big daddies were played to help them bond with the little sisters. And uh, Need a Little Sugar in My Bowl, which is filthy if you listen to the lyrics. <laughs> it's worse than uh, The Man with the Golden Gun. Uh, I need a little hot sauce on my roll. the soundtrack isn't as good or as well applied it's only because it, in the first game it is masterfully done and mm. this is not quite so much but there's some fantastic there's praise the lord and pass the ammunition which could could <laughs> and should have been in Bioshock Infinite and that's around the time when you're going up against Father Wales praise the lord favourite of all of them, which Lyra adores as well, is uh, is this one which I will now play for you guys in entirety. Children, have you ever met the bogeyman before? No, of course. 
to heaven for you're much too good, I'm sure. Don't you be afraid of him if he should visit you. He's a great big coward, so I'll tell you what to do. Hush, 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 here comes the boogeyman. Don't let him come too close to you, he'll catch you if he can. Just pretend that you're a crocodile, and you will find that bogeyman will run away a mile. Say shoo shoo, and stick him with a pin. Bogeyman will very nearly jump out of his skin. Say buzz buzz, just like the wasp that stings. Bogeyman will think you are an elephant with wings. Hush, 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 here comes the bogeyman. Tell him you've got soldiers in your bed, for he will never guess that they are only made of lead. Say hush, hush, he'll think that you're asleep. If you make a lovely snore away, he'll softly creep. Sing this tune, you children one and all. Bogeyman will run away, he'll think it's Henry Hall. When the shadows of the evening creep across the sky, and your mommy comes upstairs to sing a lullaby, tell her that the bogeyman no longer frightens you. Uncle Henry's very kindly told you what to do. Hush, 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 here comes the bogeyman. Don't let him come too close to you, he'll catch you if he can. Just pretend... Your teddy bear's a dog. Then shout out, fetch him, teddy. And he'll hop off like a frog. Say, meow, pretend that you're a cat. He'll think you may scratch and that will make him fall down flat. Just pretend he isn't really there. You will find that Boogeyman will finish in thin air. Here's one way to catch him without fail. Just keep a little salt with you and put it on his page. Which, for some reason, I don't know if it's supposed to apply to the Big Daddies, or you the Big Daddy, or the Splicers. Either way, there's creeping things, and uh, it's a way of uh, the, the little girls being told to see them in a less threatening... Of course. It's to stop the... It's to stop little sisters splices. being frightened of... Not even of splices, uh, of, of Big Daddy. Or, or no, yeah, of, of the... Spl- you know, you're absolutely right. Maybe it's both. Well, it, it, it minimises the um, uh, the power of the boogeyman. So I think that yeah. they, they are intended to rely on their big daddies. So they would want to reinforce how strong they are, but that they're caring as well. Yeah. So there's that. And the, the, the score by uh, Gary Shum is, again, absolutely fantastic and uh, riffs sometimes on, on some pieces from the, uh, the earlier track. But there's some really wonderful, heartbreaking moments, especially to do with the end. Character studies. Now, this one's a lot smaller than last week because we uh, only really have uh, two or three of them. Uh, Sophia Lamb. 
is the uh, one of the most important prominent characters. Um, I think I, I had the feeling that she was talking to me a lot more in this uh, second game. And I, I think I also got the feeling that Andrew Ryan was talking to me a lot more through the first game because she's in so many of the audio diaries. So you get to know her without direct engagement over the radio. Yeah. There's um, the debates that she has with Ryan yeah. that you find earlier in the game. Religious rights, Doctor. You're free to kneel before whatever tribal fetish you favor in the comfort of your own home. But in rapture, liberty is our only law. A man's only duty is to himself. To imply otherwise, therefore, is criminal. Ask yourself, Andrew. What is your great chain of progress but a faith? The chain is a symbol for an irrational force guiding us towards ascension. No less mystic than the crucifixes you seize and burn. Sinclair, I don't care how you accomplish Lamb's removal from the public eye. Indeed, I'd rather cease contact with you altogether. But allow me to make this plain. I don't want to see Lamb on the streets again, peddling her Bolshevik fever dreams to my people. Bury her memory, Sinclair. Bury it. And salt the earth. Awareness of self is no miracle, Eleanor. It is a trick of the gene, an endless inner refrain asking, what's in it for me? To serve the world, we must grow deaf to the self. Are you ready? Now, stop listening to my voice. Stop listening. Stop. Difficult, isn't it? Human verbal cues are defensive coloration, camouflage. Play this recording until you no longer hear the words. Then you may observe the people for who they are. I actually got quite sick of listening to her voice towards the end of it. I can understand that. Yeah. Especially because she, she seems like this sort of one note thing, like, you know, it's all about the collective, it's all about the consensus, and you kind of get the impression that if this is going to be the way things are from now on, Rapture's going to become an incredibly dull place. Yeah, and, yeah, and it's just the monotone, flat tone that she puts it towards yeah. you again, like incessantly not stopping until you relent and give in. Yeah. Uh, my, my problem is my study of her comes mostly from the Rapture book. Yeah. Um, and at this point, because I've read the book and played the game uh, a couple of times, well, the game three times, and I've read the book about one and a half times, um, they kind of amalgamate into one. I'm not too sure which now exists in which universe, but yeah. um, I think she's she's more interested in the book because you can see how she ends up taking the, the stance of uh, the Children of Rapture. You know, she she comes in, into Rapture in, in a fairly innocent innocent way, but um, 
quickly realizes that Ryan's vision is the wrong one for this place and it would be a waste for, for Rapture to basically just to die. So she's going to take her tenure up as, as its leader. And that's where some of the, the, the problem <laughs> with her philosophy is that she feels like, you know, she needs to be the head of this organization, <laughs> which kind of goes up against everything that she, you know, she does actually believe in. So, I mean, that's communism through and through in that regard. So. But uh, yeah, I think the, if you want a, a real deep study, the book is a really great place to go because they they dedicate a lot of time to to Sophia Lam in, in that. I'll have to read it. I quite it's like an appearance. She's the Tenenbaum is my favourite character in the, in the two games. Yeah, and Sophia Lam is the complete opposite to her in Bioshock Two. Um, she's tall and, and and very pristine in her presentation as. And then, you know, uh, Tenenbaum's very dishevelled and hers. And I like the fact that she has that 60s glasses that look like insect wings that, still, you know, it, it almost gives me that impression of that butterfly thing that she was going with, you know. Yeah. But I always get the impression that Tenenbaum's the stronger person. And I like that. Yeah, uh, Sophia, when you press her, is quite brittle. Yeah. The, um, when when you're not relenting at the end and she begins to realise how little power she has to stop you uh, and also significantly when you really get to her it's because Eleanor has betrayed her and is now aiding you yeah and I talked a bit about it in the last episode that we did but again it's that unshaking doubt that um, Sophia, Sophia Lam and Andrew Ryan have it's their downfall in the end, you yeah. know, and I think it's the doubt that Tenenbaum has in her actions in the past that has made her a stronger person. I, I compared Ryan to Hitler last week in Downfall specifically, and I realised why when listening to the podcast it, that really holds water. When Hitler, when everything's crashing down around Hitler's ears, he blames everybody else calls everybody else that he was giving orders out to weak. They're all the weak links in the chain. His code, effectively, what he had worked out should have worked. It was perfect. The flaws exist in other people. Andrew Ryan's exactly the same. He's by no means as much of a monster as Hitler, but he has, is similarly unable to see that he is culpable here. He is a weak link in this great chain. Yeah, it's that lack of doubt. Yeah. yeah. It's arrogance taken to insanity, certifiably so. It's also something that a lot of people miss when they praise um, dedication and conviction uh, as uh, virtues in and of themselves. If you, you know, you can't ignore what the conviction is about. If the conviction is totally and utterly wrong, mm. then just being, just having that conviction is not a virtue. Ryan himself creates lamb. Purely because I mean she's she's brought in because of the the you know the basically uprising of the common worker, um, you know he the, the way he describes as a common worker they should earn their day's pay and be happy with their day's mm-hmm. pay. But he also you know it's also a case of in the capitalism in people that they want more and more. So there, there becomes um, a, a distress within society of you know the, the the simple working man wanting more and more. Thus you know he becomes corrupt within himself. So. 
you have this whole underbelly of rapture that is in turmoil because they want more but ultimately there's a class above and once again a class system that that exists within this place that won't allow them to to achieve that so lamb comes in to kind of subdue those people even again i mean ryan doesn't want her there but sees the need for her to exist so he introduced i mean he she she's a late um, comer to to rapture itself so he introduces her to this society mm. he puts her in place and ultimately she sees the downfall of of what's happening with rapture and feels like she can she's the person to fix it all and basically then preys on the underbelly of the society within rapture itself so she's in massively manipulative character when you actually dig deeper into her study you know from face value she's mm. you know hugely manipulative it's just as manipulative as andrew ryan can be mm. she's very calculating mm. But it's for the greater good. Mm. The thing that she hates the most. You know? uh, if you see Lamb and Tenenbaum as two different expressions of maternal of a type instincts, I think part of the essential difference in the way that they express their relationship with the, the, the little girls who are basically entrusted to their care. Tenenbaum has numerous little girls that she has to look after. So she's having to distribute her focus. And as a result, she actually embodies more of the altruism that Lamb is trying to espouse because she sacrificed her own ideals Mm -hmm. and what she started out being, this scientist who put, um, you know... uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Authenticity of experimentation before everything else. You know, the fact that, that her, her main motivating factor when she looks back at how she behaved when she was in the, um, in the concentration camps was that the experiments were being done wrong. And that was what she wanted to see was the experiments done right. What they were actually doing was by the by. But she puts all that aside in favour of looking after the little sisters. Lamb, on the other hand, despite all of her, her ideals about altruism, her maternal focus is on one child and eventually I think she just comes to see Eleanor as a a replicant of herself and a a single channel through which she can pour her own ideals which goes totally against what she's supposed to be all about it's almost like a horrific version of those mothers that have their children in beauty pageants you know yes that's exactly what I was thinking (laughs) of yes the these very brittle women who if without their their daughters are nothing they they almost seem to to think that they cannot exist without this little miniature version of themselves like vicariously living their glories through their daughter yeah and for all her high ideals when that daughter is taken away from, no not even taken away from her when that daughter leaves her and disowns her and her ethos she intends to tear down the section of rapture that you're in and kill herself and everyone else in bo- around including her daughter including her daughter for this I don't know. She, she attaches her ideals to it, but what's really happening is she's just having a massive suicidal hissy fit. Well, yeah, she's, <laughs> same she's, as uh, same as Andrew same Ryan. As Ra- yeah, exactly yeah. the same as. And I think there's a touch of jealousy there as well. Yeah, she's jealous of the bond between Delta you know, and, and Eleanor. It's a bond that she's she never is had. Not your daughter. Yeah. She is mine. Mm-hmm. I think there's actually three mother figures in the game. There's Grace Holloway as well. Yeah, and. I think it's quite tragic that, you know, she lost 
Eleanor and the guilt that she, you know she she suffers is just heartbreaking. You know, I, I think is it explained in the game that she can't actually have any children herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and it was a great honour for her to look after Eleanor. Well, yeah, she did say that in the audio yeah. Grace. I um I worry about Grace because we never directly rescued her from Rapture, so she's technically still down there. Yeah. Once again, she's another very interesting character because, you know, she, she's, um, a character that ultimately came to Rapture to escape, uh, society's woes of racism. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, you know, befills them just exactly the same within Rapture itself. Like nothing really changes the, the you know, the time period where it's set. Um, and like I say, it is a, at that point her surrogate child that is taken away. And, you know, you can understand the hatred she has you know, towards you, she feels like you are the manipulator of the person. I mean, this is what Sophia has been telling her all along: is that you're, you're basically the guy that took Eleanor away from her. So, well, also yeah. took her career away from her. Didn't mm. Delta break her jaw ending her singing yep. career because she got too close to Eleanor? Yeah, yeah. Another character who uh, is connected with Sophia Lamb, Father Simon Wales. <laughs> And I'd forgotten about this guy completely. I'd forgotten about um, Sinclair, who, uh, I, when you mentioned he was, um, when we did the first podcast, he was a southern gent. And I was like, oh, that kind mm-hmm. of rings a bell. And then I, I um, you know, played Bioshock. So I was like, I completely forgot about this character entirely. Oh, yeah. you know, the original art was to just move yeah. forward to, to um, Bioshock. Yeah. Father Wales, when you finished Infinite... It's quite astonishing, the parallels there with uh, he and Comstock. I won't go into too much much detail regarding Comstock, but this guy has gotten a lot of followers on Rapture, uh, drummed them into a religious fervor uh, with, uh, what was the um, term, Sharon? Embracing of the spiritual world and admonishing of the physical. Oh, um, Gnosticism. He actually mentions at, at times about a false prophet stealing the daughter of the Lamb. Yeah. So I don't think that Ken Levine hated Bioshock 2 that much. <laughs> that he doesn't enlarge it. Do you think maybe Jordan Thomas was whispering in his ear? <laughs> maybe. Yeah. It's, okay. a, a lot of this is all sort of um, cut before the horse as well, because Bioshock 2 clearly had uh, a lot of basis on original ideas put forward for Bioshock 1. Mm. And if you wanted to be cruel, you could say it's the Bioshock 1 offcuts. But at the same time... This also makes for a wonderful, now that they're all out, wonderful sense of recurring symbolism throughout all of the games. I think we'll talk about that more on the Bioshock Infinite show, because you really have to have played Infinite to get the symbolism later. So I don't want to spoil anything ahead of time. I quite liked when you confront Father Wales in Siren Alley. Mm. You know how he, he twists Lamb's ideology in, into like a religion, but he evangelises Jack, the actions... That you put, you know, in the first game. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you've got the, the, the paintings of the, the airliner crash, and you've got Jack with the, the symbol of the chain and the wrists. His face is, uh, in the portrait is designed to make him look like uh, Rasputin, uh, a man who connected very strongly with Russia and the Russian royal family and the revolution, and uh, a man who was capable of drumming people into a religious fervor. And actually, now that I think about it, Father Comstock had similar facial designs in the um, propaganda pictures around Colombia. The other major female character in the game is, of course, Eleanor. I felt 
incredibly connected with Eleanor throughout. The fact that she gets to talk to you throughout the game and sort of guide you and push you on. In this game, you're actually following the uh, requests of someone you actually care about. And being able to hear her as a child with her diary... I will say that the amount of audio logs just scattered about the place, some of them with extremely incriminating evidence on them. Uh, Again, it's one of those narrative things you kind of have to not ask too many questions about. But in the case of Eleanor, it gave you kind of a, a life story for her. And, and she is really where the, the big sister was sort of brought to the fore in the game. And it's not, I never really thought of her as a big sister. As far as I'm concerned, that was just a suit she was putting on. And the big sisters themselves were a completely different animal. Mm-hmm. Uh, insofar as, I mean, Jack isn't a big daddy. Um, but he's just putting on that armor. But in the case of Eleanor, it seemed like this was something that, Maybe she was destined to do. Because it feels like she was like you are the original big daddy. She is the original big sister. But I wonder if part of that is because of the way you played the game. Because her dialogue is different if you've given her a good example to follow. Yeah. And it may well be that if she's been given the more twisted, harsh, selfish. Yeah. Uh, then she comes across like she if, might yeah. because she might come across more as a big sister. And I have to say, she actually re- what I was saying before about seeing the big sisters as these tragic figures. Eleanor actually reinforced that for me because it was almost like. This is what they're supposed to be. They're supposed mm. to be protective. They're supposed to be caring. But because they've been twisted and because they've been raised by somebody who doesn't give a shit about them, yeah. just what they can do for the collective, they are these screamy, scary things. The abuse to become abusers, of course. Exactly. I, I don't know how many people who I've spoken to who finished the game but didn't get the good ending. So it's. But here's the thing. This is all sides of the game that most people won't see because they're going to play in a specific way unless they go back and play it again, and especially if they're aware of it. So they're all subtleties to the game, which you just wouldn't get because it would feel like you're just going to get one kind of ending. I I know a lot about this game, but even I only just found out about the, the, the level of difference between what you do and what you get. But is that something then which reflects on the uh, multimedia environment that we exist in because the fact that you can now you can play the game through exactly the way you want to Mm. have the game make you feel the way you not necessarily that you can dictate that as you go along but you you know you get the feeling that you want from the way you play the game Mm. but then you can go and research you can look at the alternate endings on youtube you can read the wiki pages and find out what all the permutations could have been and all of that adds depth and understanding without you actually having to play the game through repeated times yeah. and possibly alter the way you feel about it as a result. So actually, the, the first Bioshock game was pretty binary in that, in that choice. You either yeah. ris- rescued the little sisters or you killed them. There was kind of no middle ground. I, mean, you, I think you could get away with isn't it, killing one or two yeah. and still get the good one. ended. Just one, one, there you go, just one. Just to experiment. to see. So if you, if, you, like. if you kill two little sisters, you get the bad ending? Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. But um, you know that's but that's pretty. I mean, apart from that tiny bit, but that's pretty binary, like good or bad. Yeah. Where as it seems like I've, it's been said that that was foisted on them, like the whole moral choice thing uh, at the time. Do you do you buy into that? That they were forced to give you a good and bad ending. I mean, it's also 2007. Like a, a game, de- you know, game designer development has, has come in leaps and bounds since mm. 2007. And, and you know, aided that, by Bioshock. Yeah, and it, 
it, it was a much talked about aspect um, back when the first Bioshock game came out. So I, you know, I think it had a, a fairly big influence of you know something like Mass Effect. I think improved of it than for me Dragon Age, and it's it's fairly kind of. But I mean, Kotor came choices. out before that. Consider yeah, how many millions of choices you had to make throughout that game, and and again, you got a, a good or bad ending. But you, at any point in the game, you could just go, you know what? I have been horrible too much. I'm going to start being nice, and you could still get your paragon bar enough up to rescue it from that. It's a broken system. And lest we forget the Fable series, where you could literally give money to the church to atone for your sins and get a different ending. But yeah, <laughs> in Bioshock there is a, a number of pretty great decisions, even if you don't you know, think they, they're going to have any effect on the ending. Um, mm. That's up to the player. But, you know, whether you kill or, or not kill, I mean, that's actually quite a personal choice. Like, I still aired mostly on the not killing because that's just who i am like I, this a lot of the times i could see um the reasons that people chose un- under the circumstances and environments but i can't imagine anyone killing grace a defenseless woman just standing there it's horrible when you do it ready to meet death and angry about it but not cowardly and not hiding from you anymore and certainly because you missed a dialogue she says after you don't do it which is one of the best in the game oh that's fantastic yeah you had me under a gun Yet you just walk away. No monster alive turns the other cheek. No monster does that. A thinking man does that. I know that Dr. Lamb is no liar, but she's got to be wrong about you. Doesn't seem right now, letting you walk into that bushwhack waiting outside. I can't call off the family, but I can whisper a bit and improve your odds. Stanley, the reporter, there's almost no reward there. So it's like, oh, I really want to... Oh. But and especially when he killed a huge amount of people to cover up his uh, misdeeds. And uh, he was the one who shopped in uh, you guys, and he got Eleanor taken away. Just Everything bad that's happened in both your lives is down to him. You would have every right to meet out justice. So not doing so is, is quite a step. But I've never done it. I've never um, brutally murdered him because I felt even at the time when I was first playing through, you know what? I have an example to set and I would bang on. How is Gil's death viewed from a moral perspective? If you spare him, that is considered cruel. Yeah. Right, okay. It is, it's, it's um, 2K Marin tackling euthanasia. And they snuck that past us because it's a giant thing in a. T- <laughs> and, I, and I agree with it because he's guiding you all the way to his death. Yeah, like he's instructing you how to achieve this, the goal of his own death. So that's you know, really clever. The way I they, felt okay with that. To, to have him instruct you in the past mm-hmm. in, in how to, uh, to to deal with him now. That's it's it's very poignant and well handled and, and subtle. So essentially then the, the moral barometer in two is not good and evil, it's essentially mercy and cruelty in the position that you're put in with him it's cruel to leave him alive. I would say you can, yeah. you can juxtapose compassion, compassion and, and cruelty. cruelty. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I was compassionate. Yeah. But not all of us here were. <laughs> well, yeah, my first playthrough like I said, I let Grace live but Stanley had to go and uh, <laughs> He had to go. So you're going to get the Shades of Grey ending. Yeah, yeah, the first ending was. You could see how that that actually ends up being narratively consistent. If you do things which are inconsistent, and you might have your own reasons to do it, but 
Eleanor is the game interpreting your behavior. Mm-hmm. And if she's confused about it, then she's going to be left with, uh, and the, the C is different each time. If, if she's confused, it's gray and, and dour and, and, and the weather's. And that, yeah. interestingly enough, from a psychological point of view, there is nothing that fucks a child up like inconsistency. Yeah. The rapture dream is over, and in waking, I am alone. Mother, I left behind, and you chose to die rather than to have me follow you. greatest gift of all. Something I have never had. My freedom. There is no name for what I am, but the world is about to change. I thought we would seize it together. Yet, as I sat there with you, I wondered if even I could be redeemed. Your sacrifice gave me hope. But Father, wherever you are, I miss you. But, you know, the world is full of people and it's shades of grey, so, you know. Well, and, and I think, you know, the, the most recent example is the Walking Dead game. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, you know, we've, there's been many a discussion about, well, clearly this is the right decision, only to be told by a, a swathe of people, that's, no, that's the really bad one. Really? And then, you know, that's fascinating conversation. And I, I don't think Bioshock 2 actually explores it to, to that kind of depth, but there is the same, you know, I don't think any of the, to me anyway, didn't feel she was going to react quite in the same way as Clem, um, did within The Walking Dead. But, you know, I, I, well, certainly within the endings, it would uh, show that she did, but, you know, um, you know, in dialogue terms, I don't think, you know, there's quite that immediate reaction because sometimes, um, Clem was, <laughs> was, rather upset with what my my personal choice was yeah yeah i just say on a side note although the voice acting is superb in this game i hated little eleanor's accent it was like the dick van dyke school of uh, oh, it. <laughs> I, I i i did feel very fond about her because she sounded uh, cheeky which um well yeah made me think of lyra inexorably in ethical psychiatry we must account for <laughs> Eleanor Lamb speaking. Mum says I'm not to play with the other children because they're being raised on a diet of dog-eat-dog. I wanted to see these dog-eaters, so I waited until Mum was gone and went out to find one. And guess what? The dog-eaters wear human skins. It makes them look just like us. Well, Mr. Diary, Mom's got a new security system to stop me from seeing Amir and the other kids. But security's just made of bits and bobs, like you are. And now we're the best of friends. Isn't that right? Anyway, 
Amir's got a whole book about the surface. It has India and Ireland and and everywhere. Yes, all right, Mr. Diary. If you must know, I do think Amir's kind of pretty for a dog eater. Oh no! Retreat! Eleanor, come back here at once. This is Eleanor Lamb speaking. It's been many years since my last diary. Mother found a way to rehabilitate me psychologically, but she can't remove this this thing inside my body. I look in the mirror and I see a freak. I remember very little. Just an artificial sense of peace and a compulsive hunger for Adam. Dr. Alexander is trying to help me adjust. He's responsible for part of my condition, but he wants to make amends. Hello, mother. As you've always said, I shouldn't be allowed to wander the city in my condition. But without going outside, it's harder to hear much about the world. So I'm learning at home. This, I think, is our porcelain tea service in the style of Louis the 15th. Isn't that right? Now, that's a fascinating sound. And this is called a stained glass window, handcrafted by your adoring flock. They've gone to a lot of trouble to capture your likeness, haven't they? This next bit that I'm going to play for you is actually quite disturbing. If you make the cruel choices throughout the game, harvest the little sisters, kill Grace and Stanley, leave Gil alive and in pain, the sequence where the little sister finds the pieces of the big sister outfit is pretty much the same. There are different statues showing you, Delta the Big Daddy, meeting out bloody vengeance and in fact wrenching the man out of the sea monster that was Gil which is actually cunningly symbolic of the argument people make for keeping an individual in a permanent vegetative state. But at the very end, Eleanor's speech is entirely different, and rather than setting the little sister who has done all the fetching free, she destroys her and takes her Adam, and you're watching this from the perspective of the little sister. It's considerably more distressing with visuals. The other sisters are made from me in part. As they grow up in rapture, I feel it all. When you were with the little ones, they trusted you as their father because of me. Mother was right about one thing. I have been watching you, Father, studying the way you have treated others. And now I know who I am. I survive, no matter the cost, just as you have. My new sisters trusted you, but you took what you needed and disposed of them. And I felt every one. It wasn't personal. It was the law of nature. At this point, you as the little sister are looking up at Eleanor as a lethal big sister bearing down upon you. So this... What I'm about to do is perfectly natural.
is much better. Ready now. Seeing through the eyes of a little sister. This is an analog for the moment in uh, the first game where you get to see all the little sisters playing, just like regular little girls, and hear their reactions to you. If you've been cruel and uh, and abused them, then they're they're terrified of you, and so it makes certain people stop and go all the way back and do the game again. But at this stage, you know that little sisters are little girls. But it's, it is a literal eye-opener, seeing the world through their eyes. And it had my heart in my mouth again. And I think you were very unsettled by it, weren't you, Sharon? I think, for me, what shook me about it was the... You get flashes every now and again. Hmm. And it goes back to normal view. And it just made me think, if this is genuinely the way they see this, this almost like... Imagine if... Your eyes each saw the world in a different way. Yeah. So your brain was constantly getting two different images of the world overlapping each other. And you had to decide. (laughs) And you had to decide which of those visions you're going to respond to. Basically, the only way that you can go through life without going completely insane is to, is to cover up one eye or the other. Yeah. You never quite knew when those little flashes were going to come. They almost seemed to be totally random. Mm. And there would be moments when, um, I think the, the one that really got me was I was walking through the, um, the sort of the ballroom bit. Um, and there's a group of four men in, in suits and dicky bows stood over by the wall. And I, I walked past them and they were just standing and talking and they weren't, you know, they weren't coming after me or anything like that. So I'm fine. Okay. Maybe I'm hidden. Maybe I'm, you know, they can't see me. That's fine heading over to where I needed to go and for some reason I just turned almost like I was glancing back over my shoulder and for just a second it was four very deformed splicers Mm. and even though they didn't move they didn't come after me I instantly squeaked a bit and kind of you know did moved with the thumbstick as if I could speed up my running need to get away from them fast it was extremely effective that moment is actually narratively inconsistent. If you wandered into a group of four splices, would they not jump on the child? Yeah, yeah I mean, it'd be quite nice. It's a very short section if it was a little stealth section. Yeah. Maybe it's just because I've been playing the Dishonored DLC that came out today, yeah. but uh, yeah, it might have been a. Narratively, I, it would make more sense. They could have made it work by uh, if you steer clear of the splicers, then it's fine. They don't see you. If, you. if they do see you, they run after you to try to catch you, which makes it narratively consistent. But then if a big sister charges in and kills <laughs> them, or maybe a, an alpha, one of the remaining ones, that would still maintain the fiction of the world. But just yeah. walking straight into a group of splicers doesn't make much sense. Yeah. Or even have them chase you, but mm. just at a pace that you can you know, feel pursued but keep just ahead of them. And while it does seem dreamlike, this is the part of the game that's supposed to make the most sense. Mm-hmm. Because this suddenly opens your eyes to everything that they see. Well, and it brings context to everything they've said. So, yeah. you know, I see angels. Like that, I mean, out of... And it sounds fantastic. It's a great line, certainly from the first game. Mm. But it has little context. So you just, okay, well, you know, they see the world maybe slightly different from we do. But, I mean, I, I didn't imagine they they see the world in an entirely different context as in you know drapes curtains you know raging fireplaces and you know almost uh, people lying in pools of flower petals yeah exactly yeah Yeah. like you know they you know i thought maybe they see some 
form of a corpse and it you know although the corpse is there it's it's yeah. very much almost like a dressed up mannequin on the floor yeah. um and it's just beautiful it's absolutely a beautiful, beautiful scene. eerie unsettling and certainly because you've seen as we've been talking about you've seen the, the death of rapture you know to mm. walk into a place where ultimately you know rapture would have been is very prime um you know even more so like it, it's rapture on you know yeah. um I, I, I hate saying rapture on drugs but you know it's it's what andrew ryan <laughs> said about on drugs though. no but no it's it's yeah it's, it's what andrew ryan said about art being the way the world should be this is yeah. to the little sisters way, the way the world should be but that is also very in keeping with the whole uh, abuse and brainwashing and, mm. and manipulation part of of abusive conditioning is that you are taught to to not see the abuse to not see the mm. horrible things and and to be able to just shut off the part of your brain mm. that that registers that bad things are happening yeah shut away the ugliness mm. uh, absolutely wonderful uh, moment and um i to, to a degree i'm actually pleased it wasn't a stealth section if it had made you do it again and again and again God, it would have actually oh, yeah. ended up being a pain in the ass and and, and broken yeah, but it it's more of a set piece Instead. Yeah, it's just, just something that would have na- narratively made more sense than just four splicers hanging about in the corner like yeah. a bunch of... No, she should have felt like <laughs> Ashley from Resident Evil 4. And like, suddenly, now you're the weakling. Brilliant. Yeah. But it, it brings context to pretty much, you know, at that, that point, probably 20-odd hours of gameplay that you've yeah. experienced completely through all the other series. And, you know, it, it's a powerful moment. So the first time you you go through it and the whole angel stuff is, okay, yeah, I understand now the world that they live, you know, live in. It's in keeping with the fiction as well. Um, one of the deleted audio diaries that was not in the first one uh, has Dr. Souchong saying, you know, the children uh, are frightened of corpses. But he's saying it as if it's an annoyance as opposed to perfectly mm-hmm. natural. We've got to work out a way for them to like the corpses, maybe make them see things that children like, chocolate bars or something. So, yeah, that's... Um, Go and suck out the nougat. Yeah. And then speaking of death, the end, Sophia Lamb despite all the things she's done, despite her growing insanity, the moving in of Eleanor to her uh, underwater at a point where she's drowning and panicking, I suddenly really wanted Sophia to live. I didn't want there to be bloody vengeance at this point, even though Eleanor had absolutely every reason to do so. So when she spares her, when she saves her, that was, again, fulfilling everything that we've been teaching her about, the compassion. And interestingly enough, depending on your choices, you can make it that Eleanor spares Sophia. And this is if you've spared everybody else and treated the little sisters mostly well but harvested at least one. She says this as she's saving her mother, grudgingly. And then, Father, the rapture dream was over. You taught me that right and wrong are tidal forces, ever-shifting. To survive in rapture, Father, you took what you needed from the innocent. But when the guilty posed no further threat, you simply walked away. I wanted Mother dead. But broken as she was, how could she hurt me? Now... She will grow old and die knowing that I rejected her. Which is not the same at all as forgiveness. Mm. 
There was actually a twofold reason I didn't want to see Sophia die. Enough people had died for Rapture already. It didn't need another. And at that stage, capital punishment didn't seem appropriate to move on. But also, I didn't want Eleanor to be the one to do it because of what that would do to Eleanor. So when that does happen in certain versions of the game, it's our fault. And this actually sort of comes into play sort of with infinite. Various constants and variables present in this ending dependent on perspective it's entirely right with that bit with um uh, with sophia at the end though that you again are behind the glass and yeah. you can't do anything about what eleanor chooses to do you can't directly influence her at that point yeah it's her choice for me the uh, compassion um of uh, all of these decisions was born out of the fact that for once in the game i met someone i didn't have to kill I've been saying this for years, the, the, I'm being worn down by slaughter in games. And I do genuinely think that a, an evolution of the combat in the Bioshock games is to offer some non-lethal ways of taking people down. Not necessarily to play na- into the narrative of the game, but so that you can walk away from it think, thinking, you know what, my character tried his best to make sure everyone walked away from that. And even though everybody else was out to kill me, I decided to... Well, to be a man. Not to put too fine a point on it. To choose. Choosing whether to set somebody on fire or electrocute them and smack them in the head with a wrench until their skull comes apart. That's not a choice at all. That's simply variables on the choice that's been made for you. In real life, when things happen, often terrible things, we can choose a variety of responses. Now, obviously not all games should be exploring this avenue, but I love that action RPGs are heading in this direction. Forgive me for invoking this rather heavy-handed metaphor, but I want a game that allows me to choose between running away from and running towards an explosion and dealing with the consequences of that decision. Because if we're very, very lucky, that's the closest most of us are going to come to something like that. Another um, turning on the head of a, a video game trope, you have a female companion that you do not have to protect. Yeah, fuck, she protects you. Yeah, mm-hmm. which game are we talking about here? <laughs> yeah. yeah, indeed. Yeah, so, yeah, the, the, the ending is incredibly... Um, I would say, actually, it's, it's powerful either way. I would, I'll be playing mm-hmm. all of them on this podcast, but I heartily recommend people track them down on YouTube and see them because there's lots of little details. One of them, uh, on the bad ending, uh, Eleanor is crouched on top of you with a really inhuman look in her eye and her head sort of darting back and forth like a bird and she's become the big sister unmasked. Yeah, there's a, a, a predatory and, as I say, inhuman aspect to her. I began to feel really uncomfortable watching it and this monster that we'd inadvertently created. I say we, because I didn't bloody do this one. <laughs> no, exactly. You unleash the beast on, on the yeah. world, not just below, yeah. This is another thing that won't come across in the audio here, but in the bad endings, uh, when she's looking out over the sea to the lighthouse, bodies come up from Rapture and float on the surface. This grisly, symbolic depiction of what she's going to then do to the rest of the world. You taught me... That innocence is chrysalis, a phase designed to end. Only when we are free from it do we know ourselves. You showed me that my survival, my joy, are all that matter. I indulge. Nothing else exists. 
At this point, she calmly holds on to Sophia's ankle, pulling her down below the waterline as her mother dies at her hands. Terrified, struggling, alone. The rapture dream is over, and in waking, I am reborn. You may not have wanted me, father, but you defined me. You chose to survive, no matter the cost, and I will not let your instincts go to waste. You will always be with me, father. Your memories, your drives. When I need you, you'll be there, whispering from my shoulder. There is no name for what I am, but the world is about to change, and with your help, they will never see me coming. So before we go, I'd like to thank my guests, Sharon Shaw of the new podcast, Do Try This at Home. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, tell us briefly what the podcast is about and what you're talking about in the first few episodes. Okay, it's a venture between myself and uh, Matt Ramsey, who um, was my uh, my former co-host on uh, Dorkcast. The idea behind it is that uh, each episode, Matt will recommend something for me to try uh, that he's done and I haven't, and vice versa, I'll recommend something for him. And then we're going to look at something else that's new to both of us, so maybe something that's a little bit more current or a classic that for some reason both of us have missed. Um, it's not just games, it's films, TV shows. Um, we may even look at music a little bit further down the line. Having discussed it, of course, we will then be able to um, to tell the listeners whether we uh, recommend that they do or don't try this at home. Very well said. And Tony of Kane and Rinse, I'm fairly certain my audience are familiar exactly. with your show, but you can tell us at least what's coming up. Dan just sorted out a, a new list of games, and uh, we've got some pretty interesting stuff coming up. We've got the Uncharted series we're going to tackle, it'll be interesting. Um, Josh finally gets to talk about Persona 4, so look forward to that. How one. many other people have, have been playing Persona 4 for this one? Uh, Darren Foreman, Sean um, has. So yeah, it'll be uh, an interesting... <laughs> An interesting discussion. It'll probably go on as long as the game, to be fair, but I'm sure we can edit that down to about two hours. Yeah, just the, the usual. We got Deadly Premonition coming up, Star Wing or Star Fox, depending on your your feelings. And even Show 100, we finish on a bang, um, Heavy Rain. So that will be uh, an interesting <laughs> fireworks, uh, one of our most requested show, and uh, <laughs> we shall see how it goes. But yeah, a collection of new and a collection of old Psychonauts coming out as well on Super Meat Boy. So a real, a real good mix, but uh, yeah, still, you know, good fun to be doing it. Uh, still playing lots of unusual games we haven't tackled before, and a lot of new stuff. On a side note, if folks want to see what I have to say about Heavy Rain, or did way back when I played it, <laughs> it's on this podcast feed. If you go all the way back, it's one of the very first audio articles. I think it's number one even. But uh, yeah, it was. Yeah. It was a really. Sh- it's a really short review, and it's quite <laughs> ranty. Yeah, well, there's a mixture of people that like it and dislike it on the show, so it will it will certainly go off with a bang. But uh, I just 
I just want to say, uh, obviously, thank you very much for having me on here. It's It's been a, a long time since we've obviously podcasted together after uh, many years of doing it. So it's been like I went through the wrong revolving door at some point, and here I am. So <laughs> I said, it's like you went through a tear. But no, it's been, it's been great having you. Uh, it's been great having you on and, and getting a bit of that feel back there. Um, yeah. Come on, anytime. Anytime you have I'm to about something that you at want some to. point. Just find the game. Well, maybe you have you on the heavy rain show. <laughs> oh my just god! No, I'd have to play heavy rain again. Exactly. I haven't yeah. even got a PS3. No, ask me something on 360. <laughs> and Mark Ord of Gonzo Planet, uh, we know that you're doing Batman Arkham Asylum for your next video. Uh, what else? You just give us a taste quickly of what's in the pipeline. Yeah, we've got um, the Half-Life series, and we have uh, The Walking Dead, and uh, Dishonored as well. Can't wait. Yes, I, I loved your Bioshock dissertation. So. Oh, thank you. It was a bit of a dissertation, wasn't it? <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> and, of course, to finish this particular dissertation, I can now finally play you the inherently good, inherently pure ending. The other sisters are made from me, in part. As they grow up in rapture, I feel it all. When you were with the little ones, they trusted you as their father, because of me. Mother was right about one thing. I have been watching you, Father. Studying the way you have treated others. And now I know who I am. I am free. After everything Mother has done to me, I am alive and sane enough to be curious about the sun. When you rescued my new sisters, I felt every one, and it gave me hope for the first time in years. Now, I will do the same for all the others. Starting with this one. We have done it, Father. I'll be there soon. The dream was over. You taught me that evil is just a word. Under the skin, it's simple pain. For you, mercy was victory. You sacrificed. You endured. And when given the chance, you forgave. Always. Mother believed this world was irredeemable. But she was wrong, father. We are Utopia, you and I, and in forgiving, we left the door open for her. 
The rapture dream is over, but in waking, I am reborn. This world is not ready for me, yet here I am. It would be so easy to misjudge them. You are my conscience, father, and I need you to guide me. You will always be with me now, Father. Your memories, your drives. And when I need you, you'll be there on my shoulder, whispering. If Utopia is not a place, but a people, then we must choose carefully, for the world is about to change. And in our story, Rapture was just the beginning. Okay, uh, that is all from us for this episode, but that is not all from Rapture. When we return, it will be with a new Alpha series, Big Daddy, named Sigma, as we dive into the dangerous waters and winding corridors of Minerva's den, ever aware that the thinker is watching us. And we're going to play you out with Dream by the Pied Pipers from the unforgettable teaser trailer for Bioshock 2, Sea of Dreams. Dream when they might
Thank you.